Chapter 9 Elaine shot me a wide-eyed look and mouthed the word, Council. I nodded and pointed to my staff, in the corner along with my sword cane. Elaine picked it up without a word and tossed it to me. Then she moved silently through the door of my darkened bedroom and vanished inside. The door rattled again. Dresden! Morgan growled. I know you're in there. Open the door. I swung it open before I could go on. Or you'll huff and you'll puff and so on. Morgan glowered at me, tall, sour, and dour as ever. He'd traded his robes and cloak for dark slacks, a gray silk shirt, and a sport coat. He carried a golf bag on one shoulder, and most people wouldn't have noticed the hilt of a sword nestled among the golf clubs. He leaned forward, cool eyes looking past me into my apartment. Dresden, am I interrupting something? Well, I was going to settle down with a porn video and a bottle of baby oil, but I really don't have enough for two. Morgan's expression twisted in revulsion, and I felt an absurd little burst of vindictive satisfaction. You disgust me, Dresden. Yeah, I'm bad. I'm a bad, bad man. I'm glad we got that settled. Goodbye, Morgan. I started to shut my door in his face. He slammed his palm against it. Morgan was a lot stronger than me. The door stayed open. I'm not finished, Dresden. I am. It's been one hell of a day. If you've got something to say, say it. Morgan's mouth said in a hard smile. Normally, I appreciate that kind of directness. Not with you. Gee, you don't appreciate me. I'll cry myself to sleep. Morgan stroked his thumb over the strap to the golf bag. I want to know how it is, Dresden, that Mab just happened to come to you about this problem. The one thing that can preserve your status with the council, and it just happened to fall to you. Clean living, I said, plus my Mondo wheels and killer bachelor pad. Morgan looked at me with flat eyes. You think you're funny. Oh, I know I'm funny. Unappreciated, but funny. Morgan shook his head. Do you know what I think, Dresden? You think? Morgan didn't smile. Like I said, underappreciated. I think you've planned all of this. I think you're in with the vampires and the winter court. I think this is part of a deeper scheme. I just stared at him. I tried not to laugh. I really did. Well, maybe I didn't try all that hard. The laughter must have gotten to Morgan. He balled up his fist and slammed a stiff jab into my belly that took the wind out of my sails and dropped me half to my knees. No, he said. You aren't going to laugh this off, traitor. He stepped into my apartment. The threshold didn't make him blink. The wards I had up caught him six inches later, but they weren't designed to be too much of an impediment to human beings. Morgan grunted, spoke in a harsh word in a guttural tongue, maybe old German, and slashed his hand in front of him. The air hissed and popped with static electricity, sparks flashing from his fingertips. He shook his fingers briefly and then walked in. He looked around the place and shook his head again. Dresden, you might not be a bad person, all in all, but I think you're compromised. If you aren't working with the Red Court, then I'm certain that they are using you. Either way, the threat to the Council is the same, and it's best removed by removing you. I tried to suck in a breath and finally managed to say, What the hell are you talking about? Susan Rodriguez, Morgan said. Your lover, the vampire. Anger made bright lights flash behind my eyes. She's not a vampire, I snarled. They turned her, Dresden. No one goes back. That's all there is to it. They haven't. She's not, Morgan shrugged. That's what you'd say if she'd addicted you to the venom. 
You'd say or do just about anything for them by now. I looked up at him, teeth bared. Get the fuck out of my house. He walked over to the fireplace and picked up a dust-covered gift card I'd left sitting on the mantel. He read it and snorted. Then he picked up a picture I had of Susan. Pretty, he said. But that's easy to come by. Odds are she was their pawn from the first day she met you. I clenched my hands into fists. You shut your mouth, I said. You just shut your mouth about her. That's not how it was. You're a fool, Dresden. A young fool. Do you really think that a normal, mortal woman would want anything to do with you or your life? You can't accept that she was just a tool, one of their whores. I spun to the corner, letting go of my staff, and picked up my sword cane. I drew the blade free with a steely rasp and turned toward Morgan. He saw it coming and had already drawn the bright silver blade of the wardens from the golf bag. Every tired, aching, angry bone in my body wanted to lunge at him. I'm not heavy with muscle, but I'm not slow, and I've got arms and legs miles long. My lunge is quick, and I can do it from a long way back. Morgan was a seasoned soldier, but in such close quarters it would have been a question of reflexes, advantage to the guy with the sword weighed in ounces instead of stones. In that moment, I was sure I could have killed him. He might have taken me with him, but I could have done it. And I wanted to. Badly. Not in any sort of intellectual sense, but in the part of the brain that does all the thinking after the fact. My temper had frayed to bloody tatters, and I wanted to vent it on Morgan. But a thought snuck in past the testosterone and spoiled my rage. I stopped myself, shaking, and with my knuckles white on my sword cane, drew myself up straight, and I said very quietly, That's number three. Morgan's brow furrowed, and he stared at me, his own weapon steadily extended toward me. What are you talking about, Dresden? The third plan. The Merlin's ace in the hole. He sent you here to pick a fight with me, with my door still standing open. There's another warder outside, listening, isn't there? A witness so that you can have a clean kill, hand the body over to the vampires. End of problem, right? Morgan's eyes widened. He stammered over the first word. I... I don't know what you're talking about. I picked up the sheath half of the sword cane and slipped the blade back into it. Sure you don't. Get out, Morgan. Unless you prefer to stab an unarmed man who isn't offering you violence. Morgan stared at me for a moment more. Then he shoved the sword cane back into the golf bag, swung it onto his shoulder, and headed for the door. He was almost out when there was a clunk from my bedroom. I shot a look at the doorway. Morgan stopped. He looked at me and then at my bedroom something ugly sparkling in his gaze. Who is in the bedroom, Dresden? The vampire girl, perhaps? No one, I said. Get out. We'll see, Morgan said. He turned and walked to my bedroom door, one hand still on the sword. You and those who consort with your like will be brought to task very soon. I'm looking forward to it. My heart started pounding again. If Morgan found Elaine, there was about a million things that could happen, and none of them were good. There seemed little I could do, though. I couldn't warn her. I couldn't think of a way to get Morgan out of my apartment any faster. Morgan peered through the doorway and looked around, then abruptly let out a hoarse cry and jumped back. At the same time, there was a harsh feline yowl, and Mr., my bobtailed gray cat, came zooming out of the bedroom. He darted between Morgan's legs and then streaked past him out of the apartment and up the stairs into the summer evening.
Gosh, Morgan, I said. My cat might be a dangerous subversive. Maybe I'd better interrogate him. Morgan straightened, his face slightly red. He coughed and then stalked to the door. The senior council members wish me to tell you that they will be nearby, but they will not interfere in this trial or aid you in any way. He took a business card out of his shirt pocket and let it fall to the floor. That's the contact number for the senior council. Use it when you have failed the trial. Don't let the door hit you on the brain on the way out, I responded. Morgan glared at me as he left. He slammed the door behind him and stomped up the stairs. I started trembling maybe a half a minute after he left. Reaction to the stress. At least I hadn't done it in front of him. I turned around, leaned back against the door with my eyes closed, and folded my arms over my chest. It was easier not to feel myself shaking that way. Another minute or two passed before I heard Elaine move quietly out of my bedroom. The fire popped and crackled. Are they gone? Elaine asked. Her voice was very carefully steady. Yeah, uh, though I wouldn't put it past them to watch my place. I felt her finger touch my shoulder. You're shaking, Harry. I'll be all right. You could have killed him, Elaine said. When you drew first. Yeah. Was he really setting you up like he said? I looked at her. Her expression was worried. Yeah, I said. God, Harry. She shook her head. That's way past paranoia. And you want me to give myself to those people? I covered her hand with mine. Not to them, I said. Not everybody on the council is like that. She looked at my eyes for a moment. Then she carefully drew her hand out from under mine. No. I'm not going to make myself vulnerable to men like that. Not again. Elaine, I protested. She shook her head. I'm leaving, Harry. She brushed her hair back from her face. Are you going to tell them? I took a deep breath. If the wardens found out that Elaine was still alive and avoiding them, there would be a literal witch hunt. The wardens weren't exactly known for their tolerance and understanding. Morgan was walking, talking proof of that. Anyone who helped shield her from the wardens would get the same treatment. Didn't I already have enough problems? No, I said. Of course not. Elaine gave me a strained smile. Thank you, Harry. She lifted her staff closer to her, holding it with both hands. Can you get the door for me? They're going to be out there watching. I'll veil. They won't see me. They're good. She shrugged and said without emphasis, I'm better. I've had practice. I shook my head. What are we going to do about the fairies? I don't know, she said. I'll be in touch. How can I contact you? She nodded toward the door. I opened it. She stepped up beside me and kissed my cheek again, her lips warm. You're the one with the office and the answering service. I'll contact you. Then she stepped to the door, murmuring quietly under her breath. There was a glitter of sudden silver light around her that made me blink. When I opened my eyes, she was gone. I left the door open for a moment, and it was just as well that I did. Mister came padding back down the stairs a moment later and looked at me with a plaintive meow. He prowled back into the apartment, curling around my legs and purred like a diesel engine. Mister is thirty pounds or so of tomcat. I figure one of his parents must have been a saber-toothed tiger. Good timing, by the way, I told him, and shut the door, locking it. I took in the dim, warm firelight of the room. My cheeks still tingled where Elaine had kissed it. I could smell her lingering perfume, and it brought with it a pang of almost tangible memories, a flood of things I thought I'd forgotten. 
made me feel old and tired and very alone. I walked to the mantel and straightened the card Susan had sent me in the previous Christmas. I looked at her picture next to the card. She'd been in a park that weekend, wearing a blue tank top and cut-off shorts. Her teeth were impossibly white against her darkly tanned skin and coal-black hair. I had taken the picture while she was laughing and her dark eyes shone. I shook my head. I am tired, mister, I said. I am ridiculously tired. Mister meowed at me. Well, resting would be the sane thing to do, but who am I to throw stones, right? I mean, I'm talking to my cat. I scratched in my beard and nodded to myself. Just a minute on the couch, then to work. I remember sitting down on the couch, and after that, everything went blissfully blank. Which was just as well. The next day, things got complicated. Chapter 10 I wasn't too tired to dream. Evidently, my subconscious, we've met, and he's kind of a jerk, had something on his mind because the dream was a variation on the theme that had taken up most of my sleeping hours since I'd last seen Susan. The dream began with a kiss. Susan has a gorgeous mouth. Not too thin, not too full, always soft, always warm. When she kissed me, it was like the world went away. Nothing mattered but the touch of her lips on mine. I kissed the dream, Susan, and she melted against me with a soft sound, the length of her body, pliant, eager. Her fingers reached up and trailed over my chest, nails lightly raking. I leaned back from the kiss after a long moment, and my eyes felt almost too heavy to open. My lips quivered and tingled with sensation, a feeling that begged for more kisses to make it cease. She looked up at me, dark eyes smoldering, her hair had been pulled back into a long silken tail and fell between her shoulder blades. It had grown longer in the dreams. Her lovely, aquiline face tilted up toward mine. Are you all right? I asked her. I always did. And as always, she gave me a small, sad smile and did not answer. I bit my lip. I'm still looking. I haven't given up. She shook her head and drew back from me. I had the presence of mind to look around. A dark alley this time, with the heavy, pounding music of a dance club making the nearest wall vibrate. Susan wore dark tights and a sleeveless blouse, and my black leather duster had been draped over her shoulders and fell to brush her feet. She looked at me intently and then turned toward the entrance to the club. Wait, I said. She walked to the door and turned back to me, extending her hand. The door opened and a dim, reddish light flooded out over her, doing odd things to the shadows over her face. Her dark eyes grew larger. No, that wasn't right. The black of her pupils simply expanded until the whites were gone, until there was nothing but darkness where her eyes should have been. They were vampire eyes, huge and inhuman. I can't, I said. We can't go in there, Susan. Her features grew frustrated, angry. She extended her hand to me again, more forcefully. Hands came out of the darkness in the doorway, slim, pale, androgynous. They slipped over Susan, slowly, caressingly, tugging at her clothing, her hair, 
Her eyes fluttered closed for a moment, her body growing stiff before her weight shifted slowly toward the doorway. Longing shot through me, sudden, mindless, and sharp as a scalpel's blade. Hunger, a simple and nearly violent need to touch, to be touched, followed it into me, and I suddenly could not think. Don't, I said, and I stepped toward her. I felt her hand take mine. I felt her press herself to me with another moan, and her lips, her mouth, devoured mine with ravenous kisses, kisses I answered with my own, harder and more demanding as my doubts faded. I felt it when her kiss turned poisonous, when the sudden narcotic numbness swept through my mouth and began to spread through my body. It didn't make any difference. I kissed her, tore at her clothes, and she tore at mine. The hands helped, but I didn't pay any attention to them anymore. They were an unimportant background sensation in comparison to Susan's mouth, her hands, her skin velvet and warm beneath my fingers. There was no romance, nothing but need, animal, carnal. I pushed her against the wall in the dim scarlet light, and she wrapped herself around me, frantic, her body urging me on. I pressed into her, sudden sensation of silk and honey, and had to fight for control, throwing my head back. She quivered then, and as always, she struck. Her mouth closed on my throat, a flash of heat and agony that melted into a narcotic bliss like that of her kiss, but more complete. Languid delight spread through me, and I felt my body reacting, all traces of control gone, thrusting against her, into her. The motion slowly died as sheer, quivering ecstasy spread through me. I began to lose control of my limbs, muscles turning to gelatin. I sank slowly to the floor. Susan rode me down, her mouth hot and eager on my throat, her body, her hips moving now, taking over the rhythm. The pleasure of the venom melted my thoughts, and they slid free of my flesh, floating over the ground. I looked down on my body. Beneath Susan, pale and still on the floor, eyes empty, I saw the change take her. I saw her body twist and buck, saw her skin split and rip open. I saw something dark and horrible tear its way out, all gaping dark eyes and slippery black hide. Blood, my blood, smeared its mouth. The creature froze in shock, staring down at my corpse, and as I began to drift away, the creature threw back its head, its body rubbery and sinuous as a snake's, and let out an inhuman, screeching yowl, full of rage, pain, and need. I jolted up out of sleep with a short cry, my skin sheathed in a cold sweat, my muscles aching and stiff. I panted for a moment, looking around my apartment. My lips tingled with remembered kisses, my skin with dreamed caresses. I forced myself to my feet with a groan and staggered toward my shower. There were times when it was just as well that I disconnected the water heater to head off magically inspired mishaps. It made bathing sheer torture in the winter, but sometimes there's no substitute for a cold shower. I stripped and stood under chilly water for a while, shaking. Not necessarily from cold, either. I shook with a lot of things. First, with raw and mindless lust. The shower took the edge off of that for a few moments. Don't get me wrong, I didn't have any particular death-sex fixation, but I had been used to a certain amount of friendly tension relieving with Susan. Her absence had killed that for me, completely, 
except for rare moments during the damn dreams when my hormones came raging back to the front of my thoughts again, as though making up for lost time. Second, I trembled with fear. My nightmares might be one part lusty dream, but they were also a warning. Susan's curse could kill me and destroy her. I couldn't forget that. And finally, I shook with guilt. If I hadn't let her down, maybe she wouldn't be in this mess. She was gone, and I didn't have the vaguest idea where she was. I should be doing more. I stuck my head in the water and shoved these thoughts away, washing myself off with a ton of soap and the last shampoo in the bottle. I scrubbed at my beard and finally reached out and got my straight razor and spent a few minutes and a lot of care removing it. Dark, wiry black hair fell in clumps to the shower floor and my face tingled as it breathed its first air for a couple of months. But it felt good, and as I went through the routine of grooming, my thoughts cleared. I dug some clean clothes out of my closet, padded out to the living room, and pulled back the rug that covered the trap door leading to the sub-basement. I swung the door open, lit a candle, and descended the stepladder staircase into my lab. My lab, in contrast to the havoc upstairs, looked like something run by a particularly anal-retentive military clerk. A long table ran down the middle of the room between a pair of other tables, one on either wall, leaving only narrow walkways. White steel wire shelves on the walls held a host of magical components I used in research. They resided in a variety of jars, bottles, boxes, and plastic containers, most with labels listing the contents, how much was left, and when I had acquired the item. The tables were clean except for stacks of notes, a jar of pens and pencils, and myriad candles. I lit a few of them and walked down to the other side of the lab, checking the copper summoning circle set into the floor and making sure that nothing lay across it. You never know when a magic circle would come in handy. One area of the lab that had retained the casual chaos that had been its major theme before I'd taken up nearly full residence last year. One shelf, still battered old wood, hadn't been changed or updated. Candle holders, covered in multiple shades of melted wax that had spilled down over them, sat on either side of the shelf. Between them was a scattering of various articles, a number of battered paperback romances, several Victoria's Secret catalogs, a scarlet scrap of silk ribbon that had been tied into a bow on a naked young woman named Justine, one bracelet from a broken set of handcuffs, and a bleached old human skull. Bob, wake up, I said, lighting the candles. I need to pick your brain. Lights, orange and nebulous, kindled deep in the shadows of the skull's eye sockets. The skull quivered a little bit on its shelf and then stretched its toothy mouth open in an approximation of a yawn. So, was the kid all right? Was there some portent-type action going on? Rain of toads, I said. Real ones? Yeah. Ouch, said Bob the skull. Bob wasn't really a skull. The skull was just a vessel for the spirit of intellect that resided inside and helped me keep track of the constantly evolving metaphysical laws that govern the use of magic. But Bob the Skull is a lot easier to say than Bob the Spirit of Intellect and Lab Assistant. I nodded, breaking out my Bunsen burners and beakers. Tell me about it. Look, Bob, I've got kind of a difficult situation here, and Harry, you're not going to be able to do this. There is no cure for vampirism. I like Susan, too, but it can't be done. You think people haven't looked for a cure before now? I haven't looked for one before now, I said. 
and I've had a couple of ideas I want to look at. Aye, Captain Ahab, arr, har, 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 we'll get that white devil, sir. Damn right we will, but I've got something else to do first. Bob's eyelids brightened. You mean something other than hopeless, pointless vampire research? I'm already interested. Does it have to do with the rain of toads? I frowned, got out a pad of paper and a pencil, and started scratching things down. Sometimes that helped me sort things out. Maybe. It's a murder investigation. Gotcha. Who's the corpse? Artist, Ronald Rule. Bob's eyelights burned down to twin points. Ah. Who's asking you to find the killer? We don't know he was killed. Cops say it was an accident. But you think differently. I shook my head. I don't know a thing about it, but Mab says he was killed. She wants me to find the killer and prove that it wasn't her. Bob fell into a shocked silence for nearly a minute long. My pen scratched on the paper until Bob blurted, Mab? The Mab? Harry? Yeah. Queen of air and darkness? That Mab? Yeah, I said, impatient. And she's your client? Yes, Bob. Here's where I ask you why you don't spend your time doing something safer and more boring, like maybe administering suppositories to rabid gorillas. I live for challenge, I said. Oh, you don't, as the case may be, Bob said brightly. Harry, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, you don't get tangled up with the she. It's always more complicated than you thought it would be. Thanks for the advice, Skullboy. It wasn't like I had a choice. Leah sold her my debt. Then you should have traded her something for your freedom, Bob said. You know, stolen an extra baby or something and given it to her. Stolen a baby? I'm in enough trouble already. Well, if you weren't such a goody-two-shoes all the time, I pushed at the bridge of my nose with my thumb. This was going to be one of those conversations that gave me a headache, I could tell already. Look, Bob, can we stick to the subject, please? Time is important, so let's get to work. I need to know why Rule would have been knocked off. Gee whiz, Harry, Bob said. Maybe it was because he was the summer night. My pencil fell out of my fingers and rolled on the table. Whoa, I said. Are you sure? What do you think? Bob replied, somehow putting a sneer into the words. Uh, I said, this means trouble. It means, it means that things with the she are more complicated than you thought. Gee, if only someone had warned you at some point not to be an idiot and go making deals. I gave the skull a sour look and recovered my pencil. How much trouble am I in? A lot, Bob said. The knights are entrusted with power by the she courts. They're tough. I don't know much about them, I confessed. They're some kind of representatives of the fairies, right? Don't call them that to their faces, Harry. They don't like it any more than you like being called an ape. Just tell me what I'm dealing with. Bob's eyelights narrowed until they were almost out, then brightened again after a moment as the skull began to speak. A she-knight is mortal, Bob said. A champion of one of the she-courts. He gets powers in line with his court, and he's the only one who's allowed to act in affairs not directly related to the she. Uh, meaning? Meaning that if one of the queens wants an outsider dead, her knight is the trigger man. I frowned. Hang on a minute. You mean that the queens can't personally gun down anyone who isn't in their court? Not unless the target does something stupid, like make an open-ended bargain without even trying to trade a baby for... Off topic, Bob. Do I, or don't I, have to worry about getting killed this time around? Of course you do, 
Bob said in a cheerful tone. It just means that the Queen isn't allowed to actually personally end your life. They could, however, trick you into walking into quicksand and watch you drown, uh, turn you into a stag and set the hounds after you, uh, bind you into an enchanted sleep for a few hundred years, that kind of thing. I guess it was too good to be true. But my point is that if Rule was the summer night, Mab couldn't have killed him, right? So why should she be under suspicion? Because she could have done it indirectly. And Harry, odds are that the she don't really care about Rule's murder. Nights come and go like paper cups. I guess that they were upset about something else. The only thing they really care about. Power, I guess. See, you can use your brain when you want to. I shook my head. Mab said something had been taken, and that I'd know what it was, I muttered. I guess that's it. How much power are we talking about? A knight of the she is no pushover, Harry, Bob said, his tone earnest. So we're talking about a lot of magic going AWOL. Grand theft mojo, I drummed my pen on the table. Where does the power come from originally? The Queen's, I frowned. Tell me if I'm off track here. It comes from the queens. It's part of them, right? If a knight dies, the power should snap back to the queen like it was a rubber band. Exactly. But this time it didn't. So the summer queen is missing a load of power. She's been weakened. If everything you've told me is true, yes, Bob said. There's no more balance between summer and winter. Hell, that could explain the toads. That's a serious play of forces, isn't it? Bob rolled his eyelids. The turning of the seasons? Duh, Harry. The she are closer to the mortal world than any other beings of the never-never. Summer's had a slight edge for a while now, but it looks like they've lost it. And here I thought global warming was due to cow farts. I shook my head. So Titania lost a bunch of juice, and naturally suspicion falls on her arch-enemy, Mab. Yeah, it is a kind of arch-enemy-ish thing to do, you have to admit. I guess, I frowned down at my notes. Bob, what happens if this imbalance between the courts continues? Bad things, Bob said. It will mess around with weather patterns, cause aberrant behavior in plants and animals, and sooner or later the she-courts will go to war with one another. Why? Because, Harry, when the balance is destroyed, the only thing the queens can do is to blow everything to flinders and let it settle out into a natural distribution again. What does that mean to me? I asked. It depends on who has the edge when everything is settled, Bob said. A war could start the next ice age, or set off an era of rampant growth. Well, that last one doesn't sound so bad. No, not if you're an Ebola virus. You'll have a lot of friends. Oh, bad then. Yeah, Bob said. Keep in mind that this is theory, though. I've never seen it happen. I haven't existed that long. But it's something the queens will want to avoid, if they can. Which explains Mab's interest in this, if she didn't do it. Even if she did, Bob corrected me. Did she ever actually tell you she was innocent? I molded over for a moment. No, I said finally. She twisted things around a lot. So it's possible that she did do it, or had it done, at any rate. Right, I said. So, to find out if it was one of the queens, we'll need to find her hitter. How tough would it be to kill one of these knights? A flight of stairs wouldn't do it. A couple of flights of stairs wouldn't do it. Maybe if he went on an elevator ride with you. Very funny, I frowned, drumming my pencil on the table. So it would have taken a little something extra to take out rule. Who could manage it? Regular folk could do it. 
but they wouldn't be able to do it without burning buildings and smoking craters and so on. To kill him so that it looked like an accident? Maybe another knight could. Among the she, it was either the winter knight or one of the queens. Could a wizard do it? That goes without saying. But you'd have to be a pretty brawny wizard, have plenty of preparation and a good channel to him. Even then, smoking craters would be easier than an accident. The wizards have all been in duck-and-cover mode lately. And there are too many of them to make a practical suspect pool. Let's assume it was probably internal fairy stuff. That cuts it down to three suspects. Three? The three people who could have managed it. Summer Queen, Winter Queen, Winter Night. One, two, three. Hattie, I said it could have been one of the queens. I blinked up at the skull. There are more than two? Yeah. Technically, there are three. Three? In each court. Three queens in each court? Six? That's just silly. No, not if you think about it. Each court has three queens. The queen who was, the queen who is, and the queen who is to come. Great. Which one does the knight work for? All of them. It's kind of a group thing. He has different duties to each queen. I felt the headache start at the base of my neck and creep toward the crown of my head. Okay, Bob, I need to know about these queens. Which ones? The ones who are, who were, or who are to come? I stared at the skull for a second, while the headache settled comfortably in. There's got to be a simpler parlance than that. That's so typical. You won't steal a baby, but you're too lazy to conjugate. Hey, I said, my sex life has nothing to do with... Conjugate, Harry, Conj. Oh, why do I even bother? The queen is just the queen. Queen Titania. Queen Mab. The queen who was is called the mother. The queen who is to come is known as the lady. Right now, the winter lady is Mav. The summer lady is Aurora. Lady, queen, mother, gotcha. I got a pencil and wrote it down just to help me keep it straight, including the names. So, six people who might have managed it. Plus the winter night, Bob said. In theory. Right, I said. Seven. I wrote down the titles, then tapped the notebook thoughtfully and said, Eight. Eight, Bob asked. I took a deep breath and said... Elaine's alive. She's on the investigation for Summer. Wow, Bob said. Wow, and I told you so. I know, I know. You think she might have gacked Rule? No, I said. But I never saw it coming when she and Justin came after me, either. I only need to think about if she had the means to do it. I mean, if you think it would have been tough for me, maybe she wasn't capable of taking down Rule. I was always a lot stronger than her. Yeah, Bob said. But she was better than you. She had a lot going for her that you didn't. Grace, style, elegance, breasts. I rolled my eyes. So she's on the list until I find some reason she shouldn't be. How jaded and logical of you, Harry. I'm almost proud. I turned to the folder Mab had given me and went through the newspaper clippings inside. Any idea who the winter night is? Nope, sorry, Bob said. My contacts on the winter side are kind of sketchy. Okay, then. I sighed and picked up the notebook. I know what I need to do. This should be good, Bob said dryly. Bite me. I have to find out more about Rule. Who was close to him? Maybe someone saw something. If the police assumed it was an accident, I doubt there was an investigation. Bob nodded, somehow managing to look thoughtful. So, are you going to take an ad out in the paper, or what? I went around the lab and started snuffing candles. I thought I'd try a little breaking and entering. Then I'll go to his funeral, see who shows. Gosh, can I do fun things like you when I grow up? 
I snorted and turned to the stepladder, taking my last lit candle with me. Hetty, Bob said just before I left. I stopped and looked back at him. For what it's worth, be careful. If I hadn't known any better, I'd have said Bob the Skull was almost shaking. You're an idiot about women, and you have no idea what Mab is capable of. I looked at him for a moment, his orange eyes, the only light in the dimness of my frenetically neat lab, sent a little shiver through me. Then I clomped back up the stepladder and went out to burrow trouble. Chapter 11 I made a couple of phone calls, slapped a few things into a nylon backpack, and sallied forth to break into Ronald Rule's apartment. Rule had lived at the south edge of the Loop, in a building that looked like it had once been a theater. The lobby yawned up to a high ceiling and was spacious and pretty enough, but it left me looking for velvet ropes and listening for a disorganized squawking of an orchestra warming up its instruments. I walked in wearing a hat with a FTD logo and carrying a long white flower box under one arm. I nodded to an aging security guard at the desk and went on past him to the stairs, my steps purposeful. You'd be surprised how far a hat, a box, and a confident stride can get you. I took the stairs up to Rule's apartment on the third floor. I went up them slowly, my wizard senses open, on the lookout for any energies that might yet be lingering around the site of the old man's death. I paused for a moment over the spot where Rule's body had been found to be sure that there was nothing. If a lot of magic had been put to use in Rule's murder, someone had covered its tracks impressively. I went the rest of the way up to the third floor, but it wasn't until I opened the door to the third floor hallway that my instincts warned me that I was not alone. I froze, with the door from the stairway only half open, and listened. Listening isn't particularly hard. I'm not even sure it's all that magical. I can't explain it well, other than to say I'm able to block out everything but what I hear and pick up things I would normally miss. It's a skill that not many people have these days, and one that has been useful to me more than once. This time, I was able to listen to a half-whispered basso curse and a rustle of papers from somewhere down the hall. I opened the flower box and drew out my blasting rod, then checked my shield bracelet. All in all, in close quarters like this, I would have preferred a gun to my blasting rod, but I'll have a hell of a time explaining it to the security or to the police if they caught me snooping around a dead man's apartment. I tightened my grip on the rod and slid quietly down the hall, hoping I wouldn't need to use it. Believe it or not, my first instinct isn't always to set things on fire. The door to Rule's apartment stood half open, and its pale wood glared where it had been freshly splintered. My heart sped up. It looked like someone had beaten me to Rule's place. It meant that I must be on the right track. It also meant that whoever it was would probably not be thrilled to see me. I crept to the door and peered inside. What I could see of the apartment could have been imported from 429B Baker Street. Dark woods, fancy scroll work, and patches of cloth busier than the makeup girl at a Kiss concert filled every available inch of space with Victorian splendor. Or rather, it once had. Now the place looked wrecked. A sideboard stood denuded of its drawers, which lay upturned on the floor. An old steamer chest lay on its side, its lid torn off, its contents scattered onto the carpet. An open door showed me that the bedroom hadn't been spared the rough stuff either. Clothes and broken bits of finery lay strewn around everywhere. 
The man inside Rule's apartment looked like a catalog model for Thugs R Us. He stood a hand taller than me, and I couldn't tell where his shoulders left off and his neck began. He wore old frayed breeches and a sweater with worn elbows and a hat that looked like an import from the Depression-era Bowery, a round bowler decorated with a gray band. He carried a worn leather satchel in one meat slab hand, and with the other he scooped up pieces of paper, maybe index cards, from a shoebox on an old writing desk, depositing them in the bag. The satchel bulged, but he kept adding more to it with rapid, sharp motions. He muttered something else, emitted a low rumble, and snatched up a Rolodex from the desk, cramming it into the satchel. I drew back from the door and put my back against the wall. There wasn't any time to waste, but I had to figure out what to do. If someone had shown up at Rule's place to start swinging papers, it meant that Rule had been hiding evidence of one kind or another. Therefore, I needed to see whatever it was Kong had in that satchel. Somehow I doubted he would show me if I asked him pretty please, but I didn't like my other option either. In such tight quarters and with other residents nearby, I didn't dare resort to any kind of my kaboom magic. Kaboom magic, or evocation, is difficult to master, and I'm not very good at it. Even with my blasting rod as a focus, I had accidentally dealt out structural damage to a number of buildings. So far, I'd been lucky enough not to kill myself. I didn't want to push it if I didn't have to. Of course, I could always just jump the thug and try to take his bag away. I had a feeling I'd be introduced to a whole new realm of physical discomfort, but I could try. I took another peek at the thug. With one hand, he casually lifted the sofa that had the weight of a couple hundred pounds and peered under it. I drew back from the door again. Fisticuffs. Bad idea. Definitely a bad idea. I chewed on my lip a moment more. Then I slipped the blasting rod back into the flower box, squared up my FTD hat, stepped around the corner, and knocked on the half-open door. The thug's head snapped around toward me along with most of his shoulders. He bared his teeth, anger in his eyes. FTD, I said, trying to keep my voice bland. I've got a delivery here for Mr. Rule. You want to sign for it? The thug glowered at me from beneath the shelter of his overhanging brow. Rule ain't here. Like I care, I pushed the pen at him with the other hand. Just sign it and I'll get going. This time he glared at the pen, then at me. Then he set the satchel on the coffee table. Whatever. Great, I stepped past him and put the flower box down on the table. He clutched the pen in his fist and scrawled on the bottom of the paper. I reached down with one hand as he did, plucked a piece of paper a little bigger than a playing card from the satchel, and palmed it. I got my hand back to my side just before he finished, growled, and shoved the clipboard at me. Now, he said, leave. You bet, I told him. Thanks. I turned to go, but his hand shot out and his fingers clamped on my arm like a steel band. I looked back. He narrowed his eyes, nostrils flared, and then growled, I don't smell flowers. The bottom fell out of my stomach, but I tried to keep the bluff going. What are you talking about, Mr.... Uh, I glanced down at the clipboard. Grum. Mr. Grum? He leaned down closer to me, and his nostrils flared again, this time with a low, snuffling sound. I smell magic. Smell wizard. My smile must have turned green to go with my face. Uh... Grum took my throat in one hand and lifted me straight up off the ground with a strength no human could duplicate. My vision reduced itself to a hazy tunnel, and the clipboard fell from my fingers. 
I struggled against him, uselessly. His eyes narrowed, and he bared more teeth in a slow smile. Should have minded your own business, whoever you are. His fingers started tightening, and I thought I heard something crackle and pop. I had to hope it was his knuckles instead of my trachea. Whoever you were. It was too late by far to use my shield bracelet, and my blasting rod lay out of reach on the coffee table. I fumbled in my pocket as my vision started to go black for the only weapon I had left. I had to pray that I was right in my guess. I found the old iron nail, gripped it as best I could, and shoved it hard at Grum's beefy forearm. The nail bit into his flesh. He screamed, a throaty, basso bellow that shook the walls. He flinched and spun, hurling me away from him. I hit the door to Rule's bedroom, slamming it all the way open, and got lucky. I landed on the bed rather than one of the wooden pillars at its corners. If I'd have hit one of those, I'd have broken my back. Instead, I hit the bed, bounced, fetched up hard against the wall, and tumbled back to the bed again. I glanced up to see that Grum looked very different than he had a moment before. Rather than the film noir tough guy get up, he wore a loincloth of some kind of pale leather and nothing more. His skin was a dark russet, layered with muscle and curling dark hair. His ears stood up from the sides of his head like satellite dishes, and his features had flattened, becoming more bestial, nearly like those of a gorilla. He was also better than twelve feet tall. He had to hunch over to stand, and even so, his shoulders pressed against the ten-foot ceiling. With another roar, Grum tore the nail from his arm and flung it to one side. It went completely through the wall, leaving a hole the size of my thumb. Then he spun back to me, bearing teeth now huge and jagged, and took a stalking step toward me, the floor creaking beneath his feet. Ogre, I wheezed. Crap! I extended my hand toward the blasting rod and focused my will. Ventas servitas! A sharp and sudden torrent of air caught up the flower box and hurled it straight toward me. It hit me in the chest, hard enough to hurt, but I snatched it, brought out my blasting rod, and trained it on Grum as he closed on me. I slammed more will through the rod, its tip bursting into scarlet incandescence. Fuego! I barked as I released the energy. Fire in a column the size of my clenched fist flashed out at Grum and splashed against his chest. It didn't slow him down. Not by a second. His skin didn't burn, his hair didn't even singe. The fire of my magic spilled over him and did absolutely nothing. Grum shouldered his way through the bedroom door, cracking the frame as he did, and raised his fist. He slammed it down at the bed, but I didn't wait around to meet it. I flopped over to the far side of the bed and tumbled down to the space between the bed and the wall. He reached for me, but I rolled underneath the bed, bumping against his feet, and scrambled toward the door. I almost made it, but something heavy and hard slammed against my legs, taking them out from under me and knocking me down. I only had time to realize, dimly, that Grum had picked up an antique Victorian chair that resembled more than anything else a throne and hurled it at me. The pain kicked in a second later, and I crawled toward the door. The ogre's feet pounded in rapid succession, and the floor shook as he grew closer and closer to me. From the hall, a querulous female voice demanded, What's all that racket? I've already called the police. I have. You fruits get out of our hall, or we'll lock you away. Crumb stopped. I saw frustration and rage flicker over his ape-like features. Then he snarled, stepped over me, and picked up the satchel. 
When he headed for the door, I rolled out of his way. He was big enough to simply crush my chest if he stepped on me, but I didn't want to make it easy for him. You got lucky, the ogre growled. But this is not over. Then his form blurred and shifted, growing smaller, until he wore the same appearance he had a few moments before. He settled his bowler with one hand, then stalked out the door, aiming a kick at me in passing. I cringed away from it, and he was gone. What's it gonna be, you fruit? Get out! Police sirens wailed somewhere outside. I got up, wobbled for a moment, and put my hand against the wall to help myself stay up. I turned the other hand over to look at the piece of paper I'd stolen from Grum's satchel. It wasn't paper. It was a photograph. Nothing fancy, just an instant camera shot. It showed old white-haired Rule standing in front of the magic castle at one of the Disney parks. Several young people stood beside him and around him, smiling, sunburned, and apparently happy. One was a tall, bull-necked young woman in faded jeans, with her hair dyed a shade of muddy green. She had a wide smile and a blunt, ugly face. Standing beside her was a girl who should have been in a lingerie catalog, all curves and long limbs in her brief shorts and bikini top, her hair also green, but the color of summer grass rather than that of pond scum. On the other side of Rule was a pair of young men, one of them a short, stocky fellow with a goatee and sunglasses, had his fingers lifted into a V behind the head of his companion, a small, slender man with his skin sunburned to the color of copper and his blonde hair bleached out to nearly white. Who were they? Why had Rule been with them? And why had Grum seemed so intent on removing their picture from Rule's apartment? The sirens got closer, and if I didn't want to get locked up by some well-meaning member of Chicago's finest, I needed to leave. I rubbed at my aching throat, winced at the retching, cramping pain in my back, wondered about the photograph, and stumbled out of the building. Chapter 12 I got out of the old apartment building and back to the Blue Beetle without being mugged by any attackers, inhuman or otherwise. I pulled out. A patrol car rolled up, blue bubbles flashing. I drove away at a sedate pace and tried to keep my shaking hands from making the car bob or swerve. No one pulled me over, so I must have done all right. Score one for the good guys. I had time to think, but I wasn't sure I wanted to. I'd gone to Rule's apartment on a simple snoop, not really expecting to find much, if anything. But I'd gotten lucky. Not only had I shown up at the right place, I'd done it at the right time. Someone obviously wanted to hide something there. Either more pictures like the one I'd found, or other papers from somewhere in the place. What I needed to determine now was what Grum had been trying to collect. Or nearly as good, why he was trying to make some kind of evidence vanish. Failing that, knowing who he was working for would do almost as well. Ogres aren't exactly known for their independent initiative. And given what was going on, it would be ludicrous to assume that one of the heavyweight thugs of the lands of Ferry just happened to be doing an independent contract in the home of the recently deceased. Ogres were wild fay, and they would work for either winter or summer, and they could have a range of personalities and temperaments running the gambit from jovially violent to maliciously violent. Grum hadn't seemed to be on the cheerful end of that particular scale, but he had been both decisive and restrained. The average walking mountain of muscle from Ferry wouldn't have held back from beating me to a pulp, regardless of what the neighbors shouted. 
That meant that Grum had more savvy than the average bear, that he was dangerous, even if I didn't take into account how easily he had ignored the spells I'd hurled at him. All ogres have the innate capacity for neutralizing magical forces to one degree or another. Grum had grounded out my spells like I'd been scuffing my feet on the carpet to give him a little static electricity zap. That meant that he was an old fairy and a strong one. The quick and thorough shape-shifting supported that assessment as well. Your average club-swinging thumonger couldn't have taken human form, complete with clothing, so ably. Smart plus strong plus quick equals badass. Most likely he was a trusted personal guard or highly placed enforcer. But for whom? At a stoplight, I stared at the photograph I'd taken from Grum. Damn, I muttered, who are these people? I added it to the list of questions, still growing like fungus in a locker room. Ronald Rule's funeral had already begun by the time I arrived. Flannery's funeral home in the River North area had been a family-run business until a few years before. It was an old place, but had always been well-kept. Now the carefully landscaped shrubbery had been replaced with big rocks, which were no doubt easier to maintain. The parking lot had a lot of cracks in it, and only about half of the outdoor lights were burning. The sign, an illuminated glass and plastic number that read Quiet Acres Funeral Home, glared in garish green and blue above the front door. I parked the beetle, tucked the photo into my pocket, and got out of the car. I couldn't casually take my staff or my blasting rod into the funeral home. People who don't believe in magic look at you oddly when you walk in toting a big stick covered with carvings of ruins and sigils. The people who know who I am would react in much the same way, as if I'd walked in draped in belts of ammo and carrying a heavy-caliber machine gun in each hand, John Wayne style. There could be plenty of each sort inside, so I carried only the low-profile stuff, my ring mostly depleted, my shield bracelet, and my mother's silver pentacle amulet. My reflection in the glass door reminded me that I'd underdressed for the evening, but I wasn't there to make a social column. I slipped into the building and headed for the room where they'd laid out Ronald Rule. The old man had been dressed up in a gray silk suit with a metallic sheen to it. It was a younger man's suit, and it looked too big for him. He would have looked more comfortable in tweed. The mortician had done only a so-so job of fixing Rule up. His cheeks were too red, his lips too blue. You could see the dimples on his lips where the thin lines of thread had been stitched through them to hold his mouth closed. No one would have mistaken this for an old man in the midst of his nap. It was a corpse, plain and simple. The room was about half full, people standing in little knots, talking and passing back and forth in front of the casket. No one was standing in the shadows, smoking a cigarette or looking about with a shifty-eyed gaze. I couldn't see anyone hiding quietly a bloody knife behind his back or twirling a mustache either. That ruled out the Dudley Do-Right approach to finding the killer. Maybe he, or she, or they, weren't here. Of course, I supposed it would have been possible for fairies to throw a veil or glamour over themselves before they came in, but even experienced fairies have trouble passing for mortal. Mab had looked good, sure, but she hadn't really looked normal. Grum had been much the same. I mean, he looked human, sure, but also like an extra on the set of The Untouchables. Fairies can do a lot of things really well, but blending in with a crowd generally isn't one of them. In any case, the crowd struck me as mostly relatives and business associates. No one matched the pictures. No one seemed to be a fairy in a bad mortal costume. 
and either my instincts had the night off or no one was using any kind of veil or glamour. Bad guys one, Harry zero. I stepped out of the viewing room and back into the hallway in time to hear a low whisper somewhere down the hall. That grabbed my attention. I made the effort to move quietly and crept a bit closer, listening as I went. I don't know, hissed a male voice. I looked for her all day. She's never been gone this long. Just my point, growled a female voice. She doesn't stay gone this long. You know how she gets by herself. God, said a third voice, a light tenor of a young man. He did it. He really did it this time. We don't know that, the first man said. Maybe she finally used her head and got out of town. The woman's voice sounded tired. No, Ace, she wouldn't just leave, not on her own. We have to do something. But what can we do? The second male voice said. Something, the woman said. Anything. Wow, that's specific. The first male, apparently Ace, said with his voice dry and edgy. Whatever you're going to do, you'd better do it fast. The wizard is here. I felt the muscles in my neck grow tense. There was a short, perhaps shocked silence in the room down the hall. Here? The second male echoed in a panicky tone. Now? Why didn't you tell us? I just did, dimwit, Ace said. But what should we do? The second male asked. What do we do? What do we do? Shut up, snapped the female voice. Shut up, Fix. He's in Mab's pocket, said Ace. You know he is. She crossed over from Ferry today. No way, said the second voice, presumably Fix. He's supposed to be a decent sort, right? Depends on who you hear it from, said Ace. People who get in his way have a habit of getting real dead. God, said Fix, panting. Oh, God. Oh, God. Look, said the woman. If he's here, we shouldn't be. Not until we know what it means. Furniture, maybe wooden chair creaked. Come on. I slipped back down the hall and around the corner into the lobby as I heard footsteps leaving the small side room. They didn't come toward me. Instead, they moved further down the hall, away from the lobby. They had to be heading for a back door. I chewed on my lip and weighed my options. Three very apprehensive folk, maybe human, maybe not, heading down a darkened hall toward a back door that doubtless led to an equally dark alley. It sounded like a recipe for more trouble. But I didn't think I had any options. I counted to five and followed the footsteps. I saw only a retreating shadow at the far end of the hall. I looked into the room the three had been in as I walked past it and found a small lounge with several upholstered chairs. I hesitated for a moment at the corner and heard the soft click of a metal door opening, then closing. As I rounded the corner, I saw a door with a faded sticker spelling Exit. I went to the door and opened it as quietly as I could, then poked my head out into the alley it opened into and rubbernecked around. They were standing not five feet away, three of the people from Rule's photo. The small, skinny man with the blonde white hair and dark tan was facing me. He was dressed in what looked like a second-hand brown suit and a yellow polyester clip-on tie. His eyes widened almost comically, and his mouth dropped open in shock. He squeaked, and it was enough to let me identify him as Fix. Beside him was another young man, Ace. He was the one with dark curly hair and a goatee, wearing a gray sport coat with a white shirt and dark slacks. He still had his sunglasses on when he turned to look at me, and he clawed at the pocket of his jacket upon seeing me. The third was a brawny, homely young woman with the muddy green hair and heavy brow. She had on a pair of jeans, tight enough to show the muscles in her thighs, and a khaki blouse. 
She didn't hesitate. She didn't even look. She just turned, her arm sweeping out as she did, and fetched me a blow to my cheek with the back of her shovel-sized hand. I managed to move with it a bit on the last second, but even so, the impact threw me out of the doorway and into the alley. Stars and cartoon birdies danced in my vision, and I rolled, trying to get clear before she could hit me again. Ace pulled out a small-caliber semi-automatic from his jacket pocket, but the woman growled at him, Don't be stupid! They'll kill us all! Hebbity bitter, I said by way of attempting a greeting. My mouth had gone rather numb, and my tongue felt like a lead weight. Just hang on a second. <laughs> Fix jumped up and down, pointing at me, his voice shrill. He's casting on us! The woman kicked me in the ribs hard enough to knock the wind out of me. Then she picked me up by the back of my pants, grunting with the effort, and threw me into the air. I came down ten feet away, in an open dumpster, and crunched down amid cardboard boxes and stinking refuse. Go! the woman barked. Go! 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 I lay in the garbage for a minute, trying to catch my breath. The sound of three sets of feet receded down the alley. I had just sat up when a head popped into view over me, vague in the shadows. I flinched and threw up my left arm, willing power through the shield bracelet. I accidentally made the shield too big, and sparks kicked up where the shield intersected the metal of the dumpster. But by their light, I saw whose head it was. Harry? Billy the werewolf asked. What are you doing in there? I let the shield drop and extended a hand to him. Looking for suspects. He frowned and hauled me out of the trash. I wobbled for a second or two until my head stopped spinning quite so quickly. Billy steadied me with one hand. You find any? I'd say so, yeah. Billy nodded and peered up at me. Did you decide that before or after they hit you in the face and threw you in the garbage? I brushed coffee grounds off my jeans. Do I tell you how to do your job? Actually, yeah, all the time. Okay, okay, I muttered. Did you bring the pizza? Yeah, Billy said. Got it back in the car. Why? I brushed at my shaggy hair. Uh, what I hoped was more coffee grounds fell out. I started walking down the alley toward the front of the building. Because I need to make a few bribes, I said, looking back over my shoulder at Billy. Do you believe in fairies? Chapter 13 Billy held the pizza while I drew the chalk circle on the ground back in the alley. Harry, he said, how is this supposed to work exactly? Hang on, I said. I didn't quite complete the circle, but took the pizza box from him. I opened it, took out one piece, and put it down in the middle of the circle on a napkin. Then I dabbed a bit of blood from the corner of my mouth where the girl had slugged me onto the bottom of the piece of pizza, stepped back, and completed the circle without willing it closed. Pretty simple, I said. I call the fairy in close to the pizza here. He'll smell it, jump on it, eat it. When he does, he'll get a bit of my blood, and it'll be enough to close the circle around him. Uh-huh, Billy said, his expression skeptical. He took out a second piece of pizza and started to take a bite. And then you beat the information out of him? I took the piece out of his hand, put it back in the box, and closed it. And then I bribed the information out of him. Save the pizza. Billy scowled at me, but he left the pizza alone. So what do I do? Sit tight and make sure no one else tries to pop me while I'm talking to Toot Toot. Toot Toot? Billy asked, lifting an eyebrow. Hell, spells, Billy. I didn't pick the name. Just be quiet. If he thinks there are mortals around, he'll get nervous and leave before I can snare him. If you say so, Billy said. I was just hoping to do more good than deliver pizza. I raked my fingers through my hair. I don't know what you could do yet. I could track those three in the picture you showed me. I shook my head. Odds are they just got into a car and left. Yeah, 
he said, some forced patience in his voice. But if I get their scent now, it might help me to find them later on. Oh, I said, feeling a bit stupid. Okay, so I hadn't considered the whole shape-shifting angle. Fine, if you want to. Just be careful, all right? I don't know what all might be prowling around. Okay, Mom, Billy said. He set the pizza box on top of a closed trash can, fell back down the alley, and vanished. I waited until Billy had gone to find a nice patch of shadows to step into. Then I closed my eyes for a moment, drawing up my concentration, and began to whisper the fairy's name. Every intelligent being has a name, a specific series of spoken sounds linked to its very being. If a practitioner knows the name of something, knows it in every nuance and detail of pronunciation, he can use that name to open a magical conduit to that being. That's how demons get summoned to the mortal world. Call something's name, and you make contact with it. And if you're a wizard, that means that you can then exercise power over it, no matter where in the world it is. Controlling an inhuman being via its name is a shady area of magic, only one step removed from taking over the will of another mortal. According to the White Council's Seven Laws of Magic, that's a capital crime, and they make zero-tolerance policies look positively lenient. Given how much the Council loves me, I'm a tad paranoid about breaking any of the laws of magic, so while I was calling the fairy's name, I put only the tiniest trickle of compulsion into it just enough to attract his unconscious attention, to make him curious about what might be down this particular alley. I whispered the fairy's name and stood in the shadows, waiting. Maybe ten minutes later, something made from a hummingbird and a falling star spiraled down from overhead, a flickering ball of blue-white light. It alighted on the ground, the light dimming to a luminous sheen over the form of a tiny fairy, toot-toot. Toot stood about six inches tall. He had a mane of dandelion fluff hair, the color of lilacs, and a pair of translucent dragonfly wings rising from his shoulders. Otherwise, he looked almost human, his beauty a distant echo of the lords of fairy, the she. On his head, he wore what looked like a plastic Coke bottle cap. It was tied into place with a piece of string that ran under his chin, and his lilac hair squeezed out from beneath it all the way around, all but hiding his eyes. In one hand he carried a spear, fashioned from a battered old number two pencil, some twine, and what must have been a straight pin, and he wore a little blue plastic cocktail sword through another piece of twine on his belt. Toot landed in a cautious crouch near the pizza, as though streaking in like an errant shot from a Roman candle might not have alerted anyone watching to his presence. He tiptoed in a big circle around the pizza and made a show of looking all around. One hand lifted to shade his eyes. Then he raised his arm and balled up a tiny fist and pumped it up and down a few times. Immediately, half a dozen similar streaks of glowing color darted down out of the air, each one a different color, each one containing a tiny fairy at its center. They alighted more or less together, and every one of them was armed with a weapon that might have been cobbled together from the contents of a child's school box. Captain, Toot Toot piped in a shrill voice, report! A green-lit fairy beside Toot snapped to attention and slapped herself on the forehead with one hand, then turned sharply to her left and barked, Lieutenant, report! A purple-hued fairy came to attention as well and smacked himself in the head with one hand, then turned to the next fairy beside him and snapped, Star jump report! 
And so it went down the line through Corpse Oral and First Class Privil, and finally to Second Class Privil, who marched up to Toot Toot and said, Everyone's here, generous, and we're hungry. All right, Toot Toot barked. Everyone fall apart for messy. And with that, the fairies let out shrill hoots of glee, tossed aside their weapons and armaments, and threw themselves upon the piece of pizza. As soon as the little fairies started eating, the magic circle snapped closed around them with a hardly audible pop as it sprang into place. The effect was immediate. The fairies let out half a dozen piercing shrieks of alarm and buzzed into the air, smacking into the invisible wall of the circle here and there, sending out puffs of glowing dust motes when they did. They fell into a panicked spiral around the inside of the circle until Toot Toot landed on the ground, looked up at the other fairies and started shouting, Ten huts! Ten huts! The other fairies abruptly came to a complete stop in the air, standing rigidly straight. Evidently they couldn't do that and keep their little wings going at the same time, because they promptly fell to the alley floor, landing with a half-dozen separate ouches and as many puffs of glowing fairy dust. Toot Toot recovered his pencil spear and stood at the very edge of the closed circle, peering out at the alley. Harry Dresden? Is that you? I stepped out from my hiding spot and nodded. It's me. How you doing, Toot? I expected a torrent of outraged but empty threats. That was Toot Toot's usual procedure. Instead, he let out a hiss and crouched down in the circle, spear at the ready. The other little fairies took up their own weapons and rushed to Toot Toot's side. You can't make us, Toot said. We haven't been called, and until we are, we belong to ourselves. I blinked down at him. Called? Toot, what are you talking about? We're not stupid, emissary, Toot Toot said. I know what you are. I could smell the cold queen all over you. I wondered if they made a deodorant for that. I lifted my hand in a placating gesture. Toot, I'm working for Mab right now, but it's just another client, okay? I'm not here to take you anywhere or make you do anything. Toot planted the eraser end of his spear on the ground, scowling suspiciously up at me. Really? he demanded. Really, I said. Promise? Promise. Super-duper double-dog promise spit-swear? I nodded. Super-duper double-dog promise spit-swear, I repeated gravely. Spit! Toot demanded. I spat on the ground. Oh, well then, Toot said. He dropped his spear and darted over to the pizza, much to the consternation of the other little fairies who let out piping shrills of protest and then followed him. The piece of pizza didn't last long. It was like watching one of those nature shows where the piranha devour some luckless thing that falls into the water, except here there were glittering wings and motes and puffs of glowing, colorful dust everywhere. I watched, frowning, until Toot Toot flopped onto his back, his tummy slightly distended, he let out a contented sigh, and the other fairies followed suit. So, Harry, Toot said, who do you think is going to win the war? The White Council, I said. The Red Court's got no depth on the bench and nothing in the bullpen. Toot snorted and flipped his plastic bottle cap helm off his head. His hair waved around in the breeze. Just because they don't have any cows doesn't mean that they won't win. But I don't mean that war, I frowned. You mean between the courts? Toot nodded. Yeah. Okay. What's with the armor and weapons, Toot? The fairy beamed. Neat, huh? Hugely scary, I said gravely. But why do you have them? Toot folded his arms and said, with all the gravity that six inches of fluff and pixie dust can muster, Trouble's coming. Uh-huh. I hear the courts are upset. More than just upset, Harry Dresden. 
the drawing of the wild phase beginning. I saw some dryads walking with a she-knight from summer, and a canal nereid climbed out of the water a couple of blocks over and went into a winter building. Drawing of the wild fay, like you guys? Toot nodded and propped his feet up on the legs of Star Jump, who let out a surprisingly basso belch. Not everybody plays with the courts. We mostly just do our job and don't pay attention. But when there's a war on, the wild fay get called to one side or another. Who picks which way you go? Toot shrugged. Mostly the nice wild fay go to the warm queen, and the mean ones go to the cold. I think it's got something to do with what you've been doing. Uh-huh. So, have you been doing warm or cold things? Toot let out a sparkling laugh. <laughs> How could I remember all those things? He patted his stomach and rose to his feet again, eyes calculating. Is that a pizza box you have there, Harry? I held the box out and opened it, showing the rest of the pizza. There was a collective, ooh, from the fairies, and they all pressed to the very edge of the circle until it flattened their little noses, staring at the pizza in fascinated lust. You've sure given us a lot of pizza the past couple of years, Harry, Toot said with a swallow. He didn't look away from the box in my hands. Hey, you gave me a hand when I needed it, I said. It's only fair, right? Only fair? Toot spat, outraged. It's, it's, it's pizza, Harry. I'm wanting some more work done, I said. I need information. And you're paying in pizza? Toot asked, his tone hopeful. Yes, I said. Wahoo! Toot shouted and buzzed into the air in an excited spiral. The other fairies followed him with similar corals of happiness, and the blur of colors was dizzying. Give us the pizza, Toot shouted. Pizza! 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 The other fairies shrilled. First, I said, I want some questions answered. Right, 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 Toot screamed. Ask already! I need to talk to the winter lady, I said. Where can I find her, Toot? Toot tore at his lavender hair. Is that all you need to know? <sighs> Down in the city! Down where the shops are underground and the sidewalks! I frowned. In the commuter tunnels? Yes, yes, yes. Back in the part the mortals can't see, you can find your way into Undertown. The cold lady came to Undertown. Her court is in Undertown. What? I sputtered. Since when? Toot whirled around in impatient loops in the air. Since the last autumn! I scratched at my hair. It made sense, I suppose. Last autumn, a vengeful vampire and her allies had stirred up all sorts of supernatural mischief, creating turbulence in the border between the real world and the never-never, the world of spirit. Shortly after, the war between the wizards and the vampires had begun. Those events had probably attracted the attention of all sorts of things. I shook my head. And what about the summer lady? Is she in town? Toot put his fists on his hips. Well, obviously, Harry. If winter came here, summer had to come too, didn't it? Obviously, I said, feeling a little slow on the uptake. Man, I was off my game. Where can I find her? She's on top of one of those big buildings, I sighed. Toot, this is Chicago. There's a lot of big buildings. Toot blinked at me, then frowned for a minute before brightening. It's the one with the pizza shop right by it. My head hurt some more. Tell you what, how about you guide me to it? Toot thrust out his little chin and scowled. And Miss Pizza? No way. I gritted my teeth. Then get me someone else to guide me. You've got to know someone. 
Toots scrunched up his face. He tugged at one earlobe, but it evidently didn't help him remember, because he had to rub one foot against the opposite calf and spin around in vacant circles for ten whole seconds before he whirled back to face me, the nimbus of light around him brightening. Aha! he sang. Yes, I can give you a guide. He jabbed a finger at me. But only if that's all the questions, Harry. Pizza, pizza, pizza! Guide first, I insisted, then pizza. Toot shook his arms and legs as though he would fly apart. Yes, yes, yes! Done, I said. I opened the pizza box and set it on top of the discarded crate nearby. Then I stepped over to the circle, leaned down, and with a smudge of my hand and an effort of will broke it, freeing the energies inside. The fairies chorused several pitches and variants of Yahoo! and streaked past me so quickly that they left a cone of wild air behind them, tossing my unruly hair and scattering lighter pieces of garbage around the alley. They tore into the pizza with much the same gusto they'd used on the one piece earlier, but there was enough of it now to keep them from mangling it in mere seconds. Toot zipped over to hover in front of my face and held out his little palm. A moment later, something that looked like an errant spark from a campfire whirled down and lighted on his palm. Toot said something in a language I couldn't understand, and the tiny light pulsed and flickered as though in response. Right, Toot said, nodding to the light. I peered more closely at it and could just barely make out a tiny, tiny form inside, no larger than an ant, another fairy. The light pulsed and flickered, and Toot nodded to it before turning to me. Harry Dresden, Toot said, holding out his palm. This is Elodie. She's going to pay me back a favor to guide you to the winter lady and then to the summer lady. Good enough? I frowned at the tiny fairy. Does she understand me? I barely saw Elodie stamp a tiny foot. The scarlet light around her flickered sharply twice. Yes, Toot Toot translated. Two lights for yes and one light for no. Two for yes, one for no, I muttered. Toot frowned. Or is that one for yes and two for no? I can never keep it straight. And with that, the little fairy blurred and zipped past me and away to join the swarm of softly flashing lights demolishing the pizza. Elodie, for her part, recovered from the miniature cyclone that Tutu left in his wake, whirled around dizzily for a few moments, then spiraled down to me and settled on the bridge of my nose. My eyes crossed, trying to look at her. Hey, I said. Do I look like a couch to you? Two flashes. I sighed. Okay, Elodie, do you want any pizza before we go? Two flashes again, brighter. The tiny fairy leapt up into the air again and zoomed over to the cloud around the pizza. Footsteps came down the alley. Then Billy stepped out of the shadows, pulling his sweatshirt down over his muscular stomach. I had a brief and irrational surge of jealousy. I don't have a muscular stomach. I'm not overlapping my belt or anything, but I don't have abs of steel. I don't even have abs of bronze. Maybe abs of plastic. Billy blinked at the pizza for a moment and said, Wow, that's sort of pretty, in a Jaws kind of way. Yeah, I said. Don't look at it for too long. Fairy lights can be disorienting to mortals. Gotcha, Billy said, and he glanced back at me. How'd it go? You get what you needed? Yeah, I said. You? He shrugged. Alley isn't the best place to pick up sense, but I should be able to recognize him again if I'm in my other suit. They didn't smell quite normal. Gee, what are the odds? Billy's teeth showed in the dark. <laughs> so what are we waiting for? 
Elodie picked just then to glide back over to me and settle once more on the bridge of my nose. Billy blinked at her and said, What the hell? This is our guide, I said. Elodie, this is Billy. Elodie flashed twice. Billy blinked again. Uh, charmed, he shook his head. So, what's the plan? We go confront the winter lady in her underground lair. I do the talking. You stay alert and watch my back. He nodded. Okay, got it. I looked over to see the last piece of pizza lifted up into the air by greedy fairy hands. They clustered around it, tearing and ripping, and it was gone in seconds. With that, the fairies swarmed away like a squadron of pot-bellied comets and vanished from view. Elodie fluttered off my nose and started drifting down the alleyway in the other direction. I followed her. Harry? Billy asked, his voice a touch hopeful. Are we expecting trouble? I sighed and rubbed at the place between my eyebrows. Definitely getting a headache. It was going to be a long night. Chapter 14 Elodie led Billy and me through alleyways, up a fire escape to the roof of a building, and then down the other side, and then through a junk-cluttered abandoned lot on the way to the pedway. It took us better than half an hour of scrambling after the tiny ferry through the muggy heat, and by the end of it I'd wished I'd told Toot Toot that we wanted someone who could read a street map and guide us there in a car. Chicago's commuter tunnels are a fairly recent construction compared to much of the rest of the city. The tunnels are a maze if you don't know them. Long stretches of identical overhead lights, drab, clean walls dotted with advertising posters, and intersections bearing plain and not always helpful directional signs. The tunnels closed after the workday and wouldn't open again until around 6 the next morning, but Elodie led us to an unfinished building at Randolph and Wabash. She flitted around in front of the service door that proved to be unlocked and that led down to a similar door that opened onto a darkened section of the pedway that looked as though it had been under construction but was abandoned when the building had been shut down. It was completely dark, so I slipped the silver pentacle off my neck lifting it in my hand and focusing a quiet effort of will upon it. The five-pointed star has been a symbol of magic for centuries, representing the four elements of the power of spirit bound within the circle of will, primal power under the control of human thought. I held the pentacle before me, and as I concentrated, it began to glow with a gentle blue light, illumining enough of our surroundings that we could navigate through the dark, silent tunnels. The little fairy drifted in front of us down the tunnel, and we followed her without speaking. She took us to the intersection with the main tunnels of the pedway, and on a brief walk down another tunnel, to a section shut behind a rusting metal gate with a sign that read, Danger, Keep Out. The gate proved to be unlocked, and we went down the tunnel into a damper section of the tunnels, rife with the smells of mold that was clearly not part of the pedway proper. After another fifty or sixty feet, we reached a place where the walls became rough and uneven, and shadows lay thick and heavy, despite the glow of my wizard's light. Elodie drifted over to an especially dark section of the wall and flew in a little circle in front of it. Okay, I said. I guess this is where we get in. What is where we get in? Billy asked, his voice skeptical. Get into where? Undertown, I said. I ran my hands over the wall. To the casual touch, it appeared to be bare, unfinished concrete, but I felt a slight unsteadiness when I pressed against it. It couldn't have been solid stone. There must be a panel here somewhere, 
trigger of some kind. What do you mean, under town? Never heard of it before. I was probably working here for five or six years before I did, I said. You have to understand the history of Chicago, how they did things here. Billy folded his arms. I'm listening. The city is a swamp, I said, still searching for a means of opening the door with my fingertips. We're darn near level with Lake Michigan. When they first built this place, the town kept sinking into the muck. I mean, every year it sank lower. They used to build streets, then build a latticework of wood over them, and then another street on top of that, planning on them slowly sinking. They planned houses the same way, built the front door on the second floor, and called it a Chicago entry, so when the house sank, the front door would be at ground level. What about when the street sank? Build another one on top of it, so he wound up with the whole city existing under the street level. They used to have a huge problem with rats and criminals holed up under the streets. But not anymore, Billy asked. The rats and thugs mostly got crowded out by other things. It became a whole miniature civilization down here. It was out of sight of the sun, which made it a friendly space for all the night-crawling critters around. Hence, under town, Billy said. I nodded. Under town. There's a lot of tunnels around Chicago. The Manhattan Project was housed in them for a while during World War II. It did all that atomic bomb research. Why, that's cheerful. You come down here a lot? I shook my head. Hell no. All kinds of nastiness lives down here. Billy frowned at me. Like what? Lots of things. Stuff you don't often see on the surface. Things even wizards know almost nothing about. Goblins, spirits of the earth, weirums, things that have no name. Plus the usual riffraff. Vampires sometimes find lairs down here during the day. Trolls can hide here, too. Molds and fungi you don't get in most of the natural world. You name it. Billy pursed his lips thoughtfully. So you're taking us into a maze of lightless, rotting precarious tunnels full of evil fairies and monsters. I nodded. Maybe leftover radiation, too. God, you're a fun guy, Harry. My fingers found a tiny groove in the wall, and when I pressed against it, a small flat section of stone clicked and retracted. The switch had to have triggered some kind of release because the section of wall pivoted in the center, turning outward and forming a door that led into still more dank darkness. Ha! Huh. I said with some satisfaction. There we go. Billy pressed forward and tried to step through the door, but I put a hand on his shoulder and stopped him. Hang on. There are some things you need to know. Billy frowned, but he stopped, listening. These are fairies. We'll probably run into a lot of the she, their nobles, hanging out with the winter lady. That means they're going to be dangerous, and we'll probably try to entrap you. What do you mean, entrap me? Billy said. Bargains, I said. Deals. They'll try to offer you things, get you to trade one thing for another. Why? I shook my head. I don't know. It's in their nature. The concept of debt and obligation is a huge factor in how they behave. Billy lifted his eyebrows. That's why that little guy worked for you, right? Because he owed you for the pizza and he had a debt to you. Right, I said. But it can work both ways. If you owe them something... They have a conduit to you and can use magic against you. The basic rule is not to accept any gifts from them, and for God's sake, don't offer them any gifts. They find anything other than an equal exchange to be either enticing or insulting. It isn't a big deal with the little guys like Toot, but if you get into it with a she-lord, you might not live through it. Billy shrugged. Okay, no gifts. Dangerous fairies. Got it. I'm not finished. They aren't going to be offering you wrapped packages, man. These are the she. 
They're some of the most beautiful creatures there are, and they'll try to put you off balance and tempt you. Tempt me? Like with sex? Is that what you're saying? Like any kind of sensual indulgence, sex, food, beauty, music, perfume. When they offer, don't accept it, or you'll be opening yourself up to a world of hurt. Billy nodded. Okay, got it. Let's go already. I eyed the younger man, and he gave me an impatient look. I shook my head. I don't think I could have adequately conveyed the kind of danger we might be walking into with mere words in any case. I took a deep breath and then nodded to Elodie. All right, Tinkerbell, let's go. The tiny scarlet light gave an irritated bob and then darted through the concealed doorway and into the darkness beyond. Billy narrowed his eyes and followed it, and I went after him. We found ourselves in a tunnel where one wall seemed to be made of ancient, moldering brick, and the other of a mixture of rotting wood beams, loose earth, and winding roots. A tunnel ran on, out of the circle of light from my amulet. Our guide drifted forward, and we set out to follow her, walking close together. The tunnel gave way to a sort of low-roofed cavern, supported here and there by pillars, mounds of collapsed earth, and beams that looked like they'd been added in afterward by the dwellers of Undertown. Elodie circled in place a bit uncertainly and then started floating to the right. I hadn't been following the little fairy for five seconds before the skin on the back of my neck tried to crawl up over my head and hide my mouth. I drew up short and I must have made some kind of noise because Billy shot a look back at me and asked, Harry, what is it? I lifted a hand to silence him and peered into the darkness around me. Keep your eyes open, I said. I don't think we're alone. From the shadows outside the light came a low, hissing sound. The rest of my skin erupted in goose flesh, and I shook my shield bracelet clear. I lifted my voice and said clearly, I am the wizard Dresden, emissary of the winter court, bound to pay a call upon the winter lady. I've no time or desire for a fight. Stand clear. And let me pass. A voice. A voice that sounded like a tortured cat might, if some demented being gave it the gift of speech, mewled out of the shadows, grating on my ears. We know who you are, wizard, the voice said. Its inflections were all wrong, and the tone seemed to come from not far above the ground, somewhere off to my right. Elodie let out a high-pitched shriek of terror and zipped back to me, diving into my hair. I felt the warmth of the light around the tiny fairy like a patch of sunlight on my scalp. I traded a look with Billy and turned toward the source of the voice. Who are you? A servant of the Winter Lady, the voice replied from directly behind me. Sent here to guide you safely through this realm and to her court. I turned in the other direction and peered more closely toward the sound of the voice. The wear light from my amulet suddenly gleamed off a pair of animal eyes, twenty feet away and a few inches from the floor. I looked back at Billy. He'd already noted the eyes and turned to put his back to mine, watching the darkness behind us. I turned back to the speaker and said, I ask again, who are you? The eyes shifted in place. The voice let out an angry, growling sound. Many names I am called, and many paths I have trod. Hunter I have been, and watcher, 
and guide. My lady sent me to bring you thither, safe and whole and well. Don't get mad at me, Charlie, I snapped. You know the drill as well as I do. Thrice I ask and done. Who are you? The voice came out harsh and sullen, barely intelligible. Grey Malkin, I am called by the cold lady, who bids me guide her mother's emissary with safe conduct to her court and her throne. I let out a breath. <sighs> All right, I said. So lead us. The eyes bobbed in place as though in a small bow, and Grimalkin mewled again. There was a faint motion in the shadows outside my light, and then a dull greenish glow appeared upon the ground. I stepped toward it and found a faint luminous footprint upon the ground, a vague paw, feline but too spread out and too thin to be an actual cat's. Just as I reached it, another light appeared on the floor several feet away. Make haste, wizard, mewled Grimalkin's voice. Make haste. The lady waits. The season passes. Time is short. I moved toward the second footprint, and as I reached it, a third appeared before us in the dark, and so on. What was that all about? Billy murmured, asking it the same thing three times, I mean. It's a binding, I murmured in reply. Fairies aren't allowed to speak a lie. And if a fairy says something three times, it has to be sure that it's true. It's bound to fulfill a promise spoken thrice. Ah, Billy said. So even if this thing hadn't actually been sent to guide us safely, making him say so three times would mean he's obliged to do it. Got it. I shook my head. I wanted to make sure Gray Malkin was on the level, but they hate being bound like that. From above us... The faintly glowing eyes appeared briefly, accompanied by another mewling sound that sent a chill down my spine. Oh, Billy said. He didn't look any too calm himself. His face had gone a little pale, and he walked with his hands clenched into fists. So, if Gray Malkin had good intentions to begin with, wouldn't that make him angry that you needlessly bound him? I shrugged. I'm not here to make friends, Billy. I'm here to find a killer. You've never even heard of diplomacy, have you? We followed the trail of footlights on the ground for another twenty minutes or so, through damp tunnels, sometimes only a few feet high. More sections of the tunnel showed evidence of recent construction. If you could call swirling layers of stone that seemed to have been smoothed into place like soft-serve ice cream construction. We passed several tunnels that seemed entirely new. Whatever beings lived down here, they didn't seem to be too shy about expanding. How much further? I asked. Grimalkin let out a rolling sound from somewhere nearby, not in the direction of the next footprint, either. Very near, noble emissary. Very near now. The unseen fairy guide was good to its word. At the next glowing footprint, no other appeared. Instead, we came to a large, elaborately carved double doorway made of some black wood I could not identify. The doors were eight or nine feet high and carved in a rich bas-relief. At first I thought the carvings were of a garden theme. Leaves, vines, flowers, fruit, that kind of thing. But as I walked closer to the door, I could see more detail in the light of my glowing amulet. The forms of people lay among the vines. Some sprawled amorously together, while others were nothing more than skeletons, wrapped in creeping roses or corpses, staring with sightless eyes from within a bed of poppies. Here and there in the garden, 
one could see evidence of the she, a pair of eyes, a veiled figure, and their hangers-on, the little fairies like Toot-Toot, leaf-clad dryads, pipe-wielding satyrs, and many, many others hiding from the mortals' views, dancing. Nice digs, Billy commented. Is this a place? I glanced around for our guide, but I didn't see any more footprints or feline eyes. I guess it must be. They aren't exactly subtle, are they? Well, summer's better at it than winter, but they can all be when it suits them. Uh-huh. You know what bothers me, Harry? What? Romalkin never said he'd guide us out again. I glanced back at Billy. Quiet, hissing laughter came out of the darkness, directionless. I took a deep breath. Steady, Harry. Don't let the kids see you get nervous. Then I turned to the door and struck it solidly with my fist three times. The blows rang out, hollow and booming. Silence fell on the tunnels for a long moment until the doors split down the middle and let out from behind them a flood of light and sound and color. Silence fell on the tunnels for a long moment until the doors split down the middle and let out from behind them a flood of light and sound and color. I didn't know what to expect from the winter court, but it wasn't big band music. A large brass section blared from somewhere behind the doors, and drums rattled and pounded with a rough, genuine sound of actual skins. The lights were colored and muted, as if the whole place was lit by Christmas strands, and I could see shadows whirling and moving inside. Dancers. Careful, I muttered. Don't let the music get to you. I stepped up to the great doors and passed through them. The room could have come from a roaring twenties hotel. Hell, it might have been if the hotel had sunk into the earth, turned slightly upon its side, and been decorated by things with no concept of human values. Whatever it had been, it had always been meant for dancing. The dance floor was made of blocks of rose-colored marble, and even though the floor was tilted, the blocks had been slipped to the level here and there, creating something that looked almost like a flight of low, shallow stairs. Over the treacherous blocks danced the winter she. Beautiful didn't come close. It didn't start to come close. Men and women danced together, dressed in the regalia of the 1940s. Stockings, knee-length skirts, dress uniforms of both the Army and the Navy that looked authentic to the month and year. The hairstyles and evidence corresponded as well, though the color didn't always match the setting. One she-girl I saw wore hers dyed sapphire blue, and other wore braids of silver and gold or of other colors. Here and there light gleamed from metal or gems set into ears, brows, or lips, and the riot of subtle colors gathered around each and every dancer in its own distinct, fascinating nimbus, a corona of energy, of power manifesting itself as the she danced. Even without the whirling auras, the way they moved was something hypnotic in itself, and I had to force my eyes away from it after only a few seconds of lovely legs being displayed as a woman spun, body arched back underneath a strong man's hands, throats bared and breasts offered out as hair caught the gleam of the colored lights and threw it back in waves of color. I couldn't look anywhere on the dance floor without seeing someone who should have been making fun of people on the cover of magazines for being too ugly. 
Billy hadn't been as paranoid as me, and he stood staring at the dance floor, his eyes wide. I nudged him with my hip, hard enough to make his teeth clack together, and he jerked and gave me a guilty look. I forced my eyes away from the dancers, maybe twenty couples all told, to check out the rest of the ballroom. To one side of the room stood a bandstand, and the musicians on it all wore tuxes. They were mortals, human. They looked normal, which was to say almost deformed in comparison to the dancers they performed for. Both men and women played, and none of them looked well-rested or well-fed. Their tuxes were stained with sweat, and their hair hung lank and unwashed, and a closer look showed a silver manacle around the ankle of each of them, attached to a chain that ran through the bandstand, winding back and forth among them. They didn't look upset, though. Far from it. Every one of them was bent to the music, faces locked in intensity and concentration. And they were good, playing with a unity of tone and timing that you only see from bands who've really honed their art. That didn't change the fact that they were prisoners of the Fey, but they evidently had no particular problems with the notion. The music rattled the great stone room, shaking dust from the ceiling, hidden in the darkness overhead, while the she danced. Opposite the bandstand, the dance floor descended directly into a pool of water, or what I presumed was water, at any rate. It looked black and unnaturally still. Even as I watched, the waters stirred, moved by something out of sight beneath the surface. Color rolled and rippled over the dark surface, and I got the distinct impression that the pool wasn't water, or not just water. I fought down another shiver. Beyond the dance floor, on the side of the room opposite me, stood raised tiers of platforms, each one set with a separate little table, one that could sit three or four at the most, each one with its own dim green-shaded lamp. The tables all stood at different relative heights to one another, staggered back and forth until the tiers reached a pinnacle. A single chair, made out of what looked like silver, its flaring back carved into a sigil, a snowflake the size of a dinner table. The great chair stood empty. The drummer on the bandstand went into a brief solo, and the instruments cut off altogether, but for one. The other band members sagged into their seats, a couple of them simply collapsing onto the floor, but the lead trumpet stayed standing, belting out a solo while the winter lords danced. He was a middle-aged man, a little overweight, and his face flushed scarlet, then purple, as his trumpet rang out through the solo. Then, all at once, the she stopped dancing. Dozens of beautiful faces turned to watch the soloist, eyes glittering in the muted light. The man continued to play, but I could see that something was wrong. The flush of his face deepened even more, and veins began to throb in his forehead and throat. His eyes widened and began to bulge, and he started shaking. A moment later, the music began to falter. The man tore his face away from the trumpet, and I could see him gasping for breath. He couldn't get it. A second later he jerked, then stiffened, and his eyes rolled up in his head. The trumpet slipped from his fingers, and he fell, first to his knees, then limply over to his side, to the floor of the bandstand. He hit it with finality, his eyes open but not focused. He twitched once more, and then his throat rattled and he was still. A murmur 
went through the she, and I looked back to see them parting, stepping aside with deep bows and curtsies for someone emerging from their midst. A tall girl walked slowly toward the fallen musician. Her features were pale, radiant, perfect, and looked like an adolescent copy of Mab's. That was where the resemblance ended. She looked young. Young enough to make a man feel guilty for thinking the wrong thoughts, but old enough to make it difficult not to. Her hair had been bound into long dreadlocks, each of them dyed a different shade, ranging from a deep lavender to pale blues and greens to pure white, so that it almost seemed that her hair had been formed from glacial ice. She wore leather pants of dark, dark blue, laced and open up the outside seams from calf to hip. Her boots matched the pants. She wore a white T-shirt, tight enough to show the tips of her breasts, straining against the fabric, framing the words, Off with his head. She had hacked the shirt off at the top of her ribcage, leaving pale flesh exposed, along with a glitter of silver flashing at her navel. She moved to the downed musician with a liquid grace, a thoughtless, casual sensuality, that made a quiver of arousal slip down my spine. She settled down over him, throwing a leg over his hips, straddling him, and idly raked long, opalescent fingernails over his chest. He didn't move, didn't breathe. The girl licked her lips, her mouth spreading into a lazy smile, before she leaned down and kissed the corpse's dead lips. I saw her shiver, with what was unmistakably pleasure. There, she murmured. There, you see? Never let it be said that the Lady Mav does not fulfill her promises. You said you'd die to play that well, poor creature. And now you have. A collective sigh went up from the assembled she, and then they began applauding enthusiastically. Mav looked back over her shoulder at them all with a lifted chin and a lazy smile before she stood up and bowed, left and right, to the sound of applause. The applause died off when Mav stalked away from the corpse and to the rising tiers of dinner seats, stepping lively up them until she reached the great silver throne at the top. She dropped into it, turned sideways and idly threw her legs over one arm, arching her back and stretching with the same lazy smile. My lords and ladies, let us give our poor musical brutes a little time to recover their strength. We have a visitor. The she began drifting toward the tables on the tiers, stepping into place one by one. I stood where I was and said nothing though as they settled down I became increasingly conscious of their attention, of the glittering intensity of immortal eyes upon me. Once they were all settled in, I stepped forward and walked across the dance floor until I stood at the foot of the tier. I looked up at Mav and inclined my head to her. Lady Winter, I presume. Mav smiled at me, showing a dimple, and gave one foot a girlish bounce. Indeed. You know in what capacity I am here, lady? Naturally, I nodded. Nothing like a frontal assault then. Did you arrange the murder of the summer night? Silence fell on the room. The regard of the winter she grew more intent, more uncomfortable. 
Mav's mouth spread into a slow smile, which in turn became a quiet, rolling laugh. She let her head fall back with it, and the she joined in with her. They sat there laughing at me for a good thirty seconds, and I felt my face begin to heat up with irrational embarrassment before Mav waved one hand in a negligent gesture, and the laughter obediently died away. Stars, she murmured. I adore mortals. I clenched my jaw. That's swell, I said. Did you arrange the murder of the summer night? If I had, do you really think I would tell you? You're evading, I growled. Answer the question. Mav lifted a fingertip to her lips as though she needed it to hold in more laughter. Then she smiled and said, I can't just give you that kind of information, Wizard Dresden. It's too powerful. What's that supposed to mean? She sat up, crossing her legs with a squeak of leather, and settled back on the throne. It means that if you want me to answer that question, you're going to have to pay for it. What is the answer worth to you? I folded my arms. I assume you have something in mind. That's why you sent someone to give us safe passage here. Quick, she murmured. I like that. Yes, I do, wizard. She extended a hand to me and gestured to an open seat at the table to my right and a little beneath the level of her throne. Please sit down, she said. Her teeth shone white. Let's make a deal. Chapter 15 You want me to cut another deal with the she? I said. I didn't bother to hide my disbelief. When I burst out laughing at you, do you think you'll be offended? And why should you find the notion amusing? I rolled my eyes. Christ, lady, that's what got me into this crap to begin with. Mauve's lips slithered into a quiet smile, and her left hand extended toward the seat beside her. Remember, wizard, that you came seeking something from me. Surely it would not harm you to listen to my offer. I've heard that before, usually right before I get screwed. Mav touched the tip of her tongue to her lips. One thing at a time, Mr. Dresden, I snorted. Suppose I don't want to listen. Something in her eyes suddenly made her face cold and unpleasant. I think it might be wise for you to indulge me. I simply go mad when someone ruins a good party mood. Harry, Billy muttered, these people are giving me the creeps. If she's playing games with you, maybe we should go. I grimaced. Yeah, that would be the smart thing, but it wouldn't get me any answers. Come on. I stepped forward and started climbing up to the table Mav had indicated. Billy followed closely. Mav watched me the whole time, her eyes sparkling. There, she said, once I'd been seated. Not so untamable as he claimed. I felt my jaw get a little tighter as Billy took a seat beside me. A trio of brightly colored light zipped in, bearing a silver tray holding a crystalline ewer of water and two glasses. As who said? Mav waved a hand airily. No matter. I glared at her, but she didn't seem bothered. All right, lady, I said. Talk. Mav idly stretched out a hand. A goblet of some golden liquid appeared in her fingers and rimmed over with frost as I watched. She took a sip of the drink, whatever it was, and then said, First I will name my price. 
There'd better be a blue light special. I don't have much to trade, all things considered. True. I cannot ask for a claim over you, because Queen Mab has that already. But let me see. She tapped a fingernail to her lips again and then said, Your issue. Huh? I said, glibly. Your issue, wizard, she said, toying with a violet dreadlock. Your offspring, your firstborn. In exchange, I will give you the knowledge you seek. Newsflash, Coldilocks. I don't have any children. Mav laughed. <laughs> Naturally not. But the details could be arranged. Evidently, that was a cue. The dark pool of maybe water stirred, drawing my eye. Ripples whispered as they lapped at the edges of the pool. What's that? Billy whispered to me. The waters parted, and a she-girl rose out of the pool. She was tall, slender, water sliding down over pale, naked, supple curves. Her hair was a deep shade of emerald green, and as she kept on coming up out of the water, walking up what were apparently submerged stairs, I could tell it wasn't dyed. Her face was sweetly angelic, sort of girl-next-door pretty. Her hair clung to her head, her throat, her shoulders, as did beads of water that glistened and threw back the fey lights in dozens of colors. She extended her arms, and immediately half a dozen little lights, pixies, zipped out of nowhere, bearing a swath of emerald silk. They draped it over her extended arms, but the cloth served to emphasize rather than conceal her nakedness. She looked up at the tables with her feline fey eyes and inclined her head to Mav. Then she focused on me. There was an abrupt pulling sensation, something as simple and as difficult to resist as gravity. I felt a sudden urge to get up and go down to her, to remove the silk cloth and to carry her into the water. I wanted to see her hair fan out beneath the surface, feel her naked limbs sliding around me. I wanted to feel that slender waist beneath my hands twist and writhe with her in the warm, weightless darkness of the pool. Beside me, Billy gulped. Is it just me, or is it getting a little warm in here? She's pushing it on you, I said quietly. My lips felt a little numb. It's glamour. It isn't real. Okay, Billy said without conviction. It isn't real. He reached for a glass and the ewer of water, but I grabbed his hand. No, no, food. No drink. It's dangerous. Billy cleared his throat and settled back into his seat. Oh, right. Sorry. The girl glided up the tiers of tables, glittering pixies and darting attendants around her, gathering her hair back with ornate combs, fastening gleaming jewels to her ears, lacing more about her throat, wrist, ankle. I couldn't help but follow the motion of the lights, which took my eyes on a thorough tour of her body. The urge to go to her became even stronger as she neared. I smelled her perfume, a scent like that of the mist hovering over a still lake beneath the harvest moon. The green-haired woman smiled, lips closed, then drew up in a deep curtsy to Mav and murmured, My lady. Mav reached out and took her hand warmly. Jen, she murmured, are you acquainted with the infamous Harry Dresden? Jen smiled, and her teeth gleamed between her lips. They were as green as seaweed, spinach, and fresh-steamed broccoli. Only by reputation, 
She turned to me and extended her hand, arching one verdant brow. I gave Billy a self-conscious glance and rose to take the she-lady's hand. I nudged Billy's foot with mine, and he stood up, too. I bowed politely over Jen's hand. Her fingers were cool, damp. I got the impression that her flawless skin should have been prune-wrinkled, but it wasn't. I had to fight the urge to kiss the back of her hand, to taste her cool flesh. I managed to keep a neutral tone to my voice and said, Good evening. The she-lady smiled at me, showing her green teeth again, and said, Something of a gentleman. I wouldn't have expected it. She withdrew her hand and said, And tall. Her eyes roamed over me in idle speculation. I like tall men. I felt my cheeks flush and grow warmer. Other parts suffered from similar inflammation. Mav asked, Is she lovely enough to suit you, wizard? You've no idea how many mortal men have longed for her, and how few have known her embrace. Jen let out a quiet laugh. For more than about three minutes, at any rate. Mav drew Jen down until the nearly nude she-lady knelt beside the throne. Mav toyed with a strand of her curling, leaf-green hair with one hand. Why not agree to my offer, wizard? Spend a night in the company of my maiden. Is it not a pleasant price? My voice came out more quietly than I intended. You want me to get a child on her, a child you would keep. Mav's eyes glittered. She leaned toward me and said very quietly, do not let that concern you. I can feel your hunger, mortal man. The needs in you, hot as a fever. Let go for a time. No mortal could say to you as she will. I felt my eyes drawn to the she-woman, trailing down the length of pale flesh left bare between the idle drapes of emerald silk following the length of her legs. That hunger rose again in me, a raw and unthinking need. Scent flooded over me, a perfume of wind and mist, of heated flesh. Scent evoked more phantom sensations of silken caresses of delicate fey hands, sweetly hot rake of nails, winding strength of limbs tangled with mine. Mav's eyes brightened. Perhaps she is not enough for you. Perhaps... You would wish another, even myself. As I watched, Jen leaned her cheek against Mav's thigh and placed a soft kiss upon the tight leather. Mav shifted a slow, sensual motion of her hips and back and murmured, mm, Or more, if your thirst runs deep enough. Drive a hard bargain, wizard. All of us would enjoy that. The longing, an aching force of naked need redoubled. The two fairies were lovely, more than lovely, sensuous, willing, perfectly unrestrained, perfectly passionate. I could feel that in them, radiating from them. If I made the bargain, they would make the evening one of nothing but indulgence, sensation, satiation, delight. Mav and her handmaiden would do things to me that you only read about in magazines. Dear Penthouse, I muttered, I never thought something like this would happen to me. Wizard, Mav murmured, I see you weighing the consequences in your eyes. You think too much. It weakens you. Stop thinking. Come down to earth with us. 
some mathematical and uncaring part of my brain, way the hell in the back of my head, reminded me that I did need that information. A simple statement from Mav would tell me if she was the killer or not. Go ahead, it told me. It isn't as though it's going to be painful for you to pay her price. Don't you deserve to have something pleasant happen to you for a change? Make the bargain. Get the information. Get wasted on kisses and pleasure and soft skin. Live a little before that borrowed time you're on runs out. I reached out with a shaking hand to the crystal ewer on the table. I clenched it. It clinked and rattled against the glass as I poured cool, sparkling water into it. Mab's smile grew sharper. Harry... Billy said, his voice uncertain. Didn't you just say something bad about, you know, taking food or drink from the, the, the from these people? I put the pitcher down and picked up the glass of water. Jen rubbed her cheek against Mab's thigh and murmured, They never really change, do they? No, Mab said. The males all fall to the same thing. Isn't it delicious? I unbuttoned the fly in my jeans, undid the zipper a little, and dumped the cold water directly down my pants. Some shocks of sensation are pleasant. This one wasn't. The water was so cold that tiny chips of ice had formed in it, as though it was trying to freeze itself from the inside out. That cold went right down where I had intended it to go, and everything in my genes tried to contract into my abdomen in sheer hypothermic horror. I let out a little yelp, and my skin promptly crawled with goose flesh. The gesture had its intended effect. That overwhelming, almost feral hunger withered and vanished. I was able to take my eyes off the winter lady and her handmaiden to clear my thoughts into something resembling a sane line of reason. I shook my head a bit, to be sure, and then looked up at Mab. Anger surged through me, and my jaw clenched tight, but I made an effort to keep my words at least marginally polite. Sorry, sweetie, but I have a couple of problems with that offer. Mab's lips tightened. And those would be... One, I'm not handing over a child to you. Not mine, not anyone's, not now, and not ever. If you had a brain in your head, you'd have known that. Mab's already pale face blanched even more, and she sat bolt upright on her throne. You dare? Shut up! I snarled, and it came loud enough to ring off the walls of the ballroom. I'm not finished. Mav jerked as though I'd slapped her. Her mouth dropped open, and she blinked at me. I came here under your invitation and protection. I am your guest. But in spite of that, you've thrown glamour at me anyway. I stood up, my hands spread on the table, leaning toward her for emphasis. I don't have time for this crap. You don't scare me, lady, I said. I only came here for answers. If you keep pushing me, I'm going to push back. Hard. Mav's evident anger evaporated. She leaned back on her throne, her lips pursed her expression placid and enigmatic. Well, well, well. Not so easily captured, it would seem. A new voice, a relaxed, masculine drawl, slid into the silence. I told you, Mav, you should have been polite. Anyone who declares war on the red cord isn't going to be the sort to take kindly to pressure. 
The speaker stepped into the ballroom, through the double doors, and walked casually to the banquet tables and toward Mav's throne. It was a man, maybe in his early thirties, medium build, maybe half an inch shy of six feet tall. He wore dark jeans, a white tee, and a leather jacket. Droplets of dark reddish-brown stained his shirt and one side of his face. His scalp was bald, but for the stubble of dark hair. As he approached, I picked out more details. He had a brand on his throat. A snowflake made of white scar tissue stood out sharply against his skin. The skin on one side of his face was red and a little swollen, and he was missing half of an eyebrow and a crescent of stubble on his scalp on the side. He'd been burned, and recently. He reached the throne and dropped to one knee before it, somehow conveying a certain relaxed insolence with the gesture, and extended the box to Mav. It is done? Mav asked, an almost childlike eagerness to her voice. What took you so long? It wasn't easy as you said it would be, but I did it. The winter lady all but snatched the carved box from his hands, avarice lighting in her eyes. Wizard, this is my knight, Lloyd of the family Slate. Slate nodded to me. How are you? Impatient, I responded, but I nodded back to him warily. You're the winter knight? So far, yeah. I guess you're the winter emissary, asking questions and investigating and so on. Yep. Did you kill Ronald Rule? Slate burst out laughing. <laughs> Christ, Dresden, you don't waste time, do you? I've filled my insincere courtesy quota for the day, I said. Did you kill him? Slate shrugged and said, No, to be honest with you, I'm not sure I could have killed him. He's been at this a lot longer than me. He was an old man, I said. So were a lot of wizards, Slate pointed out. I could have bench-pressed him. Sure, killing him is something else altogether. Mav let out a sudden hiss of anger, the sound eerily loud. She lifted her foot and kicked Slade in the shoulder. Something popped when she did, and the force of the kick drove the winter night down a tier into the table and the she seated there. The table toppled, and she, chairs, and night went sprawling. Mav rose to her feet, sending the green-toothed Jen scooting away from her. She drew what looked like a military-issue combat knife from the carved box. It was crusted with some kind of black, gelatinous substance, like burned barbecue sauce. You stupid animal, she snarled. Useless. This is useless to me. She hurled the knife at Slate. The handle hit him in the biceps of his left arm just as he sat up again. His face twisted into sudden fury. He took up the knife, rose to his feet, and stalked toward Mav with murder in his eye. Mav drew herself up, her face shining with a sudden terrible beauty. She lifted her right hand, ring finger and thumb both bent, and murmured something in a liquid, alien tongue. Sudden blue light gathered around her fingers, and the temperature in the room dropped by about forty degrees. She spoke again and flicked her wrist, sending glowing motes of azure flickering toward Slate. The snowflake brand flared into sudden light, and Slate's advance halted, his body going rigid. The skin around the brand turned blue, then purple, then black, spreading like a stop-motion enhanced film of gangrene. A quiet snarl slipped from Slate's lips, and I could see his body trembling with the effort to continue toward Mav. He shuddered and took another step forward. Mav lifted her other hand, her index finger extended, while the others curled, and a sudden wind whipped past me, cold enough that it stole the breath from my lungs. 
The wind whipped madly around Slate, making his leather coat flap. Bits of white frost started forming on his eyelashes and eyebrows. His expression, now anguished as well as full of rage, faltered, and his advance halted again. Calm him, Mauve murmured. Jen slipped behind Slate, wrapping her arms around his neck, leaning her mouth down close to his ear. Slate's eyes flickered with hot, violent hate for a moment, and then began to grow heavier. Jen ran her hand slowly down the sleeve of his jacket, fingers caressing his wrist. His arm lowered as I watched. A moment later, Jen slid the jacket from his shoulders. The tee was sleeveless, and Slate's arms were hard with muscle and tracked with needle marks. Jen slid out a hand, and another darting pixie handed her a hypodermic needle. Jen slipped it into the bend of his arm, still whispering to him, sliding the plunger down. Slate's eyes rolled back in his head, and he sank to his knees. Jen went down with him, wrapping around him like kelp on a swimmer, her mouth next to his ear. Mav lowered her hands, and the wind and the cold died away. She lifted a shaking hand to her face and stepped back to the throne, settling stiffly into it, narrowed eyes locked on Slate's increasingly malleable form. Her cheekbones stood out more sharply than before. Her eyes looked more sunken. She gripped the arms of the throne, her fingers twitching. What the hell was that? Billy whispered. Probably what passes for a polite disagreement, I muttered. Get up. We're leaving. I stood up. Mav's eyes darted to me. Her voice came out dry, harsh. Our bargain is not yet complete, wizard. This talk is. But I have not answered your question. Keep your answer. I don't need it anymore. You don't? Mav asked. We don't, Billy said. I nodded towards Slate and Jen. You had to push yourself to make him stand still. Look at you. You're just about out of gas right now from going up against your own night. I started down the tears, Billy coming with me. Besides that, you're sloppy, sweetheart. Reckless. A clean killing like rules takes a plan, and that isn't you. I could feel her eyes pressing against my back like frozen thorns. I ignored her. I did not give you leave to go, wizard, she said, her voice chilly. I didn't ask. I won't forget this insolence. I probably will, I said. It's nothing special. Come on, Billy. I walked to the double doors and out. As soon as we were outside, the doors swung shut with a huge, hollow boom that made us jump. Darkness fell, sudden and complete, and I fumbled for my amulet as my heart lurched in panic. The spectral light from my amulet showed me Billy's strained face first, and then the area immediately around us. The double doors were gone. Only a blank stone wall remained where they had been. Gulp, Billy said. He shook his head for a moment, dazed. Where did they go? I rested my fingers against the stone wall, reaching out for it with my wizard senses. Nothing. It was rock, not illusion. <sighs> Beats the hell out of me. The doors here must have been away to some other location. Like some kind of teleport? More like a temporary entrance into the Never-Never, I said, or a shortcut through the Never-Never to another place on Earth. Kind of intense in there, when she made it get all cold. Never seen anything like that before. Sloppy, I said. She was laying a binding on slate. Her power was sloshing over into changing the temperature. A child could do it better. Billy let out a short, 
quiet laugh. After what we just saw, anyone else would still be shaking. You're giving her the rating from the Russian judge. So sue me, I shrugged. She's strong. Strong isn't everything. Billy glanced up at me. Could you do what she did? I'd probably use fire. His eyebrows went up, his expression impressed. Do you really think Mav's not the killer? I do, I said. This murder was clean enough to look like an accident. Mav's obviously got impulse control issues. Doesn't make for much of a methodical murderer. Well, what about Slate? I shook my head, my brow tightening. I'm not sure about him. He's mortal. There's nothing that says he couldn't lie to us. But I got what I was looking for, and I found out a couple of things on top of that. So why are you frowning? Because all I got is more questions. Everyone's been telling me to hurry. Fairies don't do that. They're practically immortal, and they're not in a rush. But Mab and Gray Malkin both have tried to rush me now. Mav went for the high-pressure sales tactic, too, like she didn't have time for anything more subtle. Why would they do that? I sighed. Something's in motion. If I don't run down the killer, the courts could go to war with one another. That would explain the whole World War II dress motif back there. Yeah, but not why time would be so pressing. I shook my head. If we could have stayed there longer, I might have been able to work out more. But it was getting too nervous in there. Discretion, valor, Billy said by way of agreement. We leave now, right? Elodie, I asked. I felt a stirring in my hair, and then the tiny pixie popped out to hover in the air in front of me. Can you lead us back to my car? The pixie flashed in the affirmative and zipped away. I lifted my amulet and followed. Billy and I didn't speak until our guide led us out of the underground complex not far from where we parked the Blue Beetle. We cut through an alley. About halfway down it, Billy grabbed my arm and jerked me bodily behind him, snapping, Harry, get back! In the same motion, he swung out one foot and kicked a metal trash can. It went flying, crashing into something I hadn't seen behind it. Someone let out a short, harsh gasp of pain. Billy stepped forward and picked up the metal lid that had fallen to the ground. He swung it down at the shape. It struck with a noisy crash. I took a couple steps back to make sure I was clear of the action and reached for my amulet again. Billy, I said, what the hell? I felt the sudden presence at my back half a second too late to get out of the way. A hand the size of a dinner plate closed on the back of my neck like a vice and lifted. I felt my heels rise until my toes were just barely touching the ground. A voice, a feminine contralto, growled, Let go of the amulet and call him off, wizard. Call him off before I break your neck. Chapter 16 Being held up by your neck hurts. Trust me on this one. I lifted my hands by way of attempting to convey compliance and said, Billy, get off him. Billy took a step back from the pale-haired young man he'd knocked down. Fix whimpered and scuttled away on his hands and butt. His borrowed brown suit was soiled and torn, and his yellow polyester tie hung from his collar by only one of its clips. He put his back against the alley wall, eyes wide beneath the shock of white dandelion hair. Billy's eyes flickered from my assailant to Fix and back. He squinted at her for a moment and set his jaw in an expression of casual determination. Harry, you want me to take her? Wait a minute, I managed to say. Okay, he's off. Put me down. The grip on the back of my neck relaxed, and I... Oh. Oh, it's on the back of his neck. Fuck. 
Wait a minute, I managed to say. Okay, he's off. Put me down. The grip on the back of my neck relaxed, and as I touched ground again, I took a step toward Billy, turning to face the woman who had held me. As I expected, it was the tall, muscular young woman from the funeral home, her muddy green hair hanging lankly over her eyes and one cheek. She folded her arms and shifted her weight from one foot to the other. Fix? Are you okay? The smaller man panted. My lip is cut. It isn't bad. The woman nodded and faced me again. All right, I said. Who the hell are you? My name is Merrill, she said. Her voice was surprisingly quiet, contrasting with her size. I wanted to apologize, Mr. Dresden, for hitting you and throwing you into the dumpster. I raised my eyebrows. Are you sure you got the right guy, Merrill? No one ever apologizes to me for anything. She pushed at her hair with one hand and felt right back over her face. I'm sorry. I was scared earlier, and I acted without thinking. I traded a glance with Billy. Uh, okay. I'm pretty sure lurking in a dark alley to mug me with your apology isn't the usual way to go about saying you're sorry. But I didn't read that Mars-Venus book, so who knows. Her mouth twitched, and she relaxed her stance by a tiny degree. I didn't know how else to find you, so I was just waiting near your car. Okay, I said. My neck still throbbed where her fingers had clamped on. Five to one, I would have some wonderful stripy bruises the next day. I nodded and turned away. Apology accepted. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have things I need to do. A note of panic crept into her voice. Wait, please. I stopped and looked back at her. I need to talk to you, just for a minute. She took a deep breath. I need your help. Of course she did. It's very important. Of course it was. My headache started coming back. Look, Merrill, I've got a lot on my plate already. I know, she said. Investigating Ron's death. I think I can help you. I pursed my lips. You were close to rule? She nodded. Me, Fix, Ace, and Lily. I flashed back on the photo of Rule and the four young people. Green-haired girl? Very cute? Yes. Where's Ace? He had to go to work right after the funeral, but Lily's why I need to talk to you. She's missing. I think she's in trouble. I started filling in context on the conversation I'd overheard between them. Who are you? I told you. My name is Merrill. Okay, fine. What are you, Merrill? She flinched at the question. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know what you meant. She raked at her hair again. I'm a changeling. We all are. A what? Billy asked. I nodded, getting it. Changeling, I said to Billy. She's half mortal, half fae. Aha, Billy said. Which means what? I shrugged. It means that she has to choose whether to remain a mortal or become wholly fae. Yes, she said. And until then, I'm under the rule of the court of my fae father, Winter. The others, too. That's why the four of us stick together. It was safer. Billy nodded. Oh. Merrill, I said, what makes you think your friend is in trouble? She's not very independent, Mr. Dresden. We share an apartment. She doesn't have a very good idea of how to take care of herself, and she gets nervous if she's out of the apartment for too long. And what do you think happened to her? The winter night. Billy frowned. Why would he hurt people of his own court? Merrill let out a brief, hard laugh. <laughs> because he can? 
He had a thing for Lily. He would hurt her, frighten her. He got off on it. He was furious when Mav told him to back off. And once Ron was gone, her voice trailed off and she turned her head to one side. How does Rule fit into this? I asked. He was protecting us. Mav had been torturing us for fun and we didn't know where to turn. Ron took us in. He put us under his protection and no one in winter was willing to cross him. And what about your fey dad? Billy asked. Didn't he do anything to look out for you? Merrill gave Billy a flat look. My mother was raped by a troll. Even if he'd been strong enough to do anything about Mav hurting us, he wouldn't have. He thinks he's already done enough by not devouring my mom on the spot. Oh, Billy said. Sorry. I frowned. And with the summer night gone, you think Slate grabbed the girl? Merrill said. Someone broke into the apartment. Looked like there'd been a struggle. I let out a sigh. <sighs> have you contacted the police? Oh, yeah, of course. I called them and told them that a mortal champion of the Fae came and spirited away a half-mortal, half-Nixie professional nude model from Fairyland. I had to admire the well-placed sarcasm. It doesn't take a supernatural stud muffin to cause something very bad to happen to a cute girl in this town. Your plain old mortal kidnappers and murderers can manage just fine. She shook her head. Either way, she's still in trouble. I lifted a hand. What do you want from me? Help me find her. Please, Mr. Dresden. I closed my eyes. I didn't have time, energy, or brain power to spare for this. The smart thing would be to blow her off entirely, or promise her I'd do it and promptly forget about it. This just isn't a good time. I felt like crap the second I said it. I didn't look at the changeling's face. I couldn't. There's too much trouble already. And I don't even know if I can help myself, much less your friend. I'm sorry. I turned to go, but Merrill stepped in front of me. Wait. I told you, I said. There's nothing I can... I'll pay you, Merrill said. Oh, right. Money. I was about to lose the office and the apartment, and this ferry work only paid in misery. I needed to pay some bills, go to the grocery store. My mouth didn't actually water, but it was close. I shook my head again. Look, Merrill, I wish I could. Double your fee, she said, her voice urgent. Double my fee. I hesitated some more. Triple, she said. She reached out for her back pocket and produced an envelope. Plus one thousand cash, up front, right now. I looked back at Fix, still trembling and leaning against the alley wall, a handkerchief pressed to his mouth. Merrill continued to rock from one foot to the other, her eyes on the ground, waiting. I tried to look at things objectively. A thousand bucks wouldn't spend if I got myself killed while distracted by the additional workload. On the other hand, if I lived through this thing, the money would be necessary. My stomach growled, and a sharp pang of hunger made me clench the muscles of my belly. I needed the work. But more to the point, I needed to be able to live with myself. I wasn't sure I was comfortable with the idea of looking back on this particular patch of memory and seeing myself leave some helpless girl, changeling or not, to the metaphoric wolves. People don't ask me for help if they're anything less than desperate. The changelings had been terrified of me a few hours before. If they turned to me for help now, it was because they were out of options. And they also had money. Damn it, damn it, damn it, I muttered. I snatched the envelope. All right. I'll look into it. I'll do what I can. But I can't make you any promises. 
Merrill let out a shuddering breath. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dresden. Yeah, I sighed. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a slightly crumpled business card. Here's my office number. Call and leave a message to let me know how I can reach you. She took the card and nodded. I don't know if I can pay your fees all at once, but I'll be good for it, even if it takes a while. Well, we can worry about that later when we're all safe and sound, I said, and I nodded to her, then to Fix, and started walking down the alley again. Billy kept an eye on the pair of them and followed me. We reached the parking lot of the funeral home a few minutes later. The lights were all out, and the Blue Beetle was the only car left in the lot. No one had bothered to steal it. What a shock. So what's next? Billy asked. I'll call Murphy, see if she can tell me about Lloyd Slate. Billy nodded. Anything I can do to help? Actually, yeah, I said. Get out the phone book and call the hospitals. See if the morgues have a green-haired Jane Doe. You think she's dead, then? I think it would be a lot simpler if she was. He grimaced. Calling morgues? There must be about a million of them in Chicagoland. Isn't there anything else I could do? Well, welcome to the glamorous world of private investigation. You want to help or not? Okay. Okay, Billy said. My car's a block over. I'll get back to you as soon as I'm done making calls. All right, I'll probably be at my place, but if not, you know the drill. Billy nodded. Be careful. And he walked quickly down the street without looking back. I fumbled my keys out and walked to the beetle. I didn't smell the blood until I was close enough to touch the car. Through the window, I saw a form, more or less human-shaped, curled up on my passenger seat. I circled cautiously to the other side of the car and abruptly opened the door. Elaine fell out of the car onto the pavement of the parking lot. She was drenched in blood that had soaked through her T-shirt, matted her golden brown hair on one side, and ran down her flanks to saturate her jeans to mid-thigh. Her silver pinnacle shone with liquid scarlet. The skin of her forearms was covered with long slashes and blood, and her face looked white. Dead. My heart hammered in my chest, and I leaned down to her, fumbling at her throat. She still had a very slow pulse, but her skin felt cool and waxy. She started shuddering and whispered, Harry, I'm here, I'm here, Elaine. Please, she whispered. Oh, God, please help me.